the brain infrastructure, 87 billion neurons, billions and trillions of connections. This is the infrastructure that you're creating after the age of 21. Cognitive capacity is the connectivity of the neurons. The infrastructure, imagine a building, a huge building that's held up by billions of pillars. So if a few of them are knocked down, nobody sees any difference from outside. Which means cognition hasn't necessarily changed in a way that would be yeah. observable. Observable. The building is functioning. Nobody sees any difference, but the pillars are being knocked down one at a time in, in your 20s. I want this to be emphasized because it's very difficult for us to emphasize brain health to younger people. And those pillars are foundational. We're knocking them down or building them in our 20s. So everything you eat, every, your exercise, everything determines those pillars. So the, the pillars are knocked down, knocked down, knocked down. And then in your 60s, now there are enough pillars knocked down where you start seeing the wavering. Welcome back to another episode of The Proof. I'm Simon Hill, your show host. Today I have the distinct privilege of hosting the extraordinary duo, Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzai, also known as the Brain Docs. Dr. Aisha Sherzai is a distinguished vascular neurologist and research scientist. Dr. Dean Sherzai is a behavioral neurologist and neuroscientist. Together they've authored their two books, The Alzheimer's Solution and the 30-day Alzheimer's solution. In this conversation, we build on previous episodes, delving into the complex world of neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's dementia. We explore the scientific community's current understanding of the causes behind Alzheimer's dementia, and of course, the recent amyloid plaque controversy. We also discuss other neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's, Huntington's, ALS and MND, and multiple sclerosis. Along the way, we unravel several lifestyle tips to help promote long-term brain health and dispel common myths surrounding gluten, olive oil, red meat, omega-3s, choline, and more. My hope is that this three-hour episode will leave you armed with a plethora of vital information to help you take better control of your health. Before we dive into this exchange, I'd like to kindly request that you subscribe to our channel on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you're tuning in from. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Your support is not only deeply appreciated, but also essential in expanding the reach of this show. And now, my conversation with Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzai. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app. 
making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dean, Aisha, it's been a minute. It's uh, great to be doing this again. I think last time we caught up, if my memory serves me correct, was Little Pine, where we had dinner. Yes. That's right. That's right. With Adam and his partner and brother. And, yeah. and then uh, we seem to always meet over food. We, we ate, <laughs> I think a little bit before that, we also went to Cafe Gratitude with your kids. That's we right. Did. Yes. We did, yes. Yeah. That was a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, that was, Little Pine was 2021. It was 2021, yeah. So yeah. maybe 18 months ago. Exactly. Right. exactly. But it's, uh, it's nice to be back in your presence. Oh, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you for having us. Uh, I thought we could maybe start this conversation with something a little different, a bit of a a true or false, uh, almost like a rapid fire type uh, segment. And you can, you can add some nuance or or context if you, if you wish, maybe a couple minutes for each one maximum, and then we can put a pin in anything that we want to come back to. Of course. Uh, does that sound okay? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. You're in the hot seat now. Okay. Okay. So the first one, Aisha, actually, and I wanted to check, is that the best way to pronounce your name? Yes. Perfect. Aisha is the better cook, but Dean, he does have a few recipes up his sleeve. (laughs) Yes. Uh, where it's, they're accidental, uh, where we were making pizza and uh, my, my spreading technique wasn't working out so I created a stromboli just folded it in and said it's stromboli and the kid said oh my gosh this is the best thing we've eaten I didn't tell him it was a mistake so whenever I make mistakes that's my recipe mm, that's, I do yeah. similar I turn yeah. a lot of things into a scramble that's right <laughs> <laughs> oh I, I'm a master of scramble I'm just just mix things up yes yes okay. but she is she's amazing uh, I mean I know she's Very my wife but uh, mm. amazing cook. what's your favorite thing I should have cooked at the moment that's a difficult thing to say to to highlight i mean i love the idea of coming up with recipes i don't really stay on track with recipes and books the way i learned how to cook i mean i went to cooking school but i learned how to cook from my mom 
and she was always a touchy-feely kind of a person where she experimented with different ingredients and we'd lived in different countries so she would make variations of different cultural foods and so currently I think we're experimenting more with um, adding more different ingredients together and chopping them so chopped salads and wraps and uh, you know soups that have a lot of different kind of vegetables and legumes and whole grains together so Quick and easy ones are mm-hmm. my favorite. Keep the microbiome happy. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna chop and change between some fun ones, some personal ones, and some science. Science is fun too, of course. Amyloid plaque is the primary cause of Alzheimer's. It's ground zero. True or false? False. Um, amyloid plaque is a downstream product, and about five percent it is the primary cause. That's the uh, APP, which is, and then the presenilin 1 and presenilin 2 variants. People who have these genes, they're going to get Alzheimer's early, before 65, and it's driven by amyloid. And we know the mechanism. It's the beta secretase and gamma secretase cutting the APP transmembrane protein in the wrong place. Then these proteins actually accumulate, and then they create these protein structures that become almost infectious they propagate other protein structures. There's an infectious prion-like process. That's about three to 5%. But the rest is not so much driven by amyloid. Amyloid is a downstream product because we're not able to clear it in time. All this inflammation, all this oxidation, everything else adds to the process where we become overwhelmed. So that's the the real answer. That's what I want to come back to. Yes. I want to talk about the... Uh, amyloid hypothesis and some of the controversy over the last year or so that I know you guys have covered extensively. So I'd really uh, appreciate to get your perspective on that. And I'm sure lots of people would love to hear from you on it. The next one is, and this was inspired partly by a book, but also partly by a lot of comments on, on social media. Whole grains and gluten are bad news when it comes to long-term brain health. Oh, absolutely false. Actually, we have evidence to the contrary that whole grain consumption is associated with improved markers of cognition, which essentially are the vascular risk factors that we talk about all the time, improved cholesterol markers, improved glucose metabolism, as much as glucose is vilified. uh, We know that when people consume whole grains, they actually do much better when it comes to the glucose metabolism, improved markers of blood pressure, uh, vascular permeability, cerebral blood flow. And so um, it's unfortunate that they've been, you know, considered as something that is harmful. It's not. Where do you, where do you think that idea comes from? Is it, is it an oversimplification of just saying carbohydrates are carbohydrates and not sort of delineating between different types? I think that has to do a lot with it. I think the definitions are not clarified. And I think it has to do something with marketing as well. A lot of times foods that are highly refined, highly refined carbohydrates are just given the general term of carbohydrates. When you when you think of carbohydrates, they think of bread and a one lump, a bigger category, not knowing that there's different variations of carbohydrates. We have our slow, complex starches, which come from fruits, vegetables, whole grains like quinoa, brown rice, you know, the grains that are not 
gotten rid of their bran and their covering. And then you have the highly processed refined carbohydrates and the spectrum goes on to like processed sugar, the table white sugar that we have. Obviously we have enough evidence to show that when people stay, uh, you know, they consume more complex forms of carbohydrates, they do well as far as their met metabolism is concerned. It's the simplified and the refined carbohydrates that are associated with damage to our vasculature. I think that's such an important point because metabolic health at the moment is like clearly quite a, a buzz word and everyone's focusing on metabolic health and often there is this oversimplification I see where carbohydrates are just demonized across the board but when you do look at that data as you mentioned there people that are eating more fruits which do contain carbohydrates more whole grains have lower risk of, of type 2 diabetes lower risk of obesity so I'm, I'm glad that you kind of underlined that there's a psychology to all this as well the psychology behind this and and we have to address that as as, as a society because it's the easy psychological path where people are looking for the one-off the extraordinary the the superfood the super villain, the one thing that they can take off, the one thing that they can add. It's simplification psychologically as far as what I can do to really truly change my, my life. So if there's one villain grains or one, you know, then it's much easier to circumscribe, define and, and attack it and feel good about it as opposed to a more complex approach, which is you have to take a lot of things together. And what about the gluten piece? So not all whole grains contain gluten, but several of them do. Is there any data at all that suggests someone should be worried about gluten, um, celiac aside, anyone else should be worried about gluten from a brain health point of view? So Yeah, so there's about uh, uh, anywhere between one to three, some people say up to 5% people that have sensitivities. And that's a spectrum. Like a lot of other foods that have a spectrum of sensitivity, this is another one. And, and if you are sensitive, to gluten and that that in itself should be addressed really systematically because once you open that door everybody that feels a little uncomfortable with a piece of food they say oh I have sensitivity so that should be tested out because by by inappropriate or inaccurate exclusion you've just excluded entire food groups that's that's an important thing that you've basically excluded a very important food group for the rest of your life because you've just put a title on it I'm sensitive to it but if it's tested and you truly are sensitive, there are two things to do. One is you can desensitize. There's a process of desensitizing. The other is, yes, if you, if you can, exclude it. But I truly think that that group can slowly incorporate it into their life because the benefits outweigh the, 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 the discomfort, the temporary discomfort. As far as objective evidence is concerned, there's no shortage. We actually have a number of really good quality long-term observational human studies that show that when people consume gluten, not only does it not have negative effects on cognition and brain, I'm just going to stick to the brain today, but it actually, uh, you know, people who avoid gluten may actually do more harm to themselves because you may know, you, you know about this and you've spoken about this in your previous podcasts. When you get rid of a food or a food product from your diet, would you replace it with? An isocaloric replacement of that food matters a lot. And when people remove whole grains as a source of gluten from their diet, they replace it with most likely other things that could potentially be refined carbohydrates 
or it could be sources of saturated fats and all the other right. things. You start to kind of look for gluten-free labels. Exactly. Which we know has that health halo effect. Like if I was to to personally, if I sort of think about this, if I was to remove gluten from my diet, let's say I have celiac, I would make sure that I'm removing the gluten-containing whole grains, but instead eating the gluten-free whole grains. And that would be the focus. And that's going to be best for brain health, cardiovascular health, etc. And Dean, your point, uh, I think, was really pertinent. And it kind of builds on what Dr. B has mentioned many times on this show, is that often if you believe you're intolerant to gluten, firstly, it could be gluten, it could be wheat, there are some sort of wheat sensitivities. Exactly. And then there are, there's also FODMAP sensitivities. And there are some studies where they've challenged uh, people who thought they were intolerant to gluten. And they did some really interesting um, experiments and were able to tease out that in several cases, it was actually FODMAPs. It wasn't gluten. And then, as you say, there are protocols to eliminate foods, which is a big trend right now, yeah. but then systematically try and rebuild it, bring the diversity back in so that you're eating a diet that you can tolerate, but is also health promoting. Absolutely. Off air just before you mentioned artificial intelligence. So this is the next true or false. Artificial intelligence is going to dramatically improve diagnosis and management of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and help us develop more effective therapeutic interventions. 100%. Um, artificial intelligence, aside from all the fear that we hear, which might be true and might not be true, to be honest, we, we're, we're not completely um, sure of that. But as far as the positive side, is just absolutely immense. We are involved in this. We, we have a company that's working on artificial intelligence and, and brain. Our two kids were smarter than us. They both went into artificial intelligence and, 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 and programming. And um, the, the data is, is there already. I mean, the ability of these machines to process faster, more, more intelligently, and algorithmically dive deeper into knowledge is just absolutely immense. Um, I mean, whether you call it machine learning or otherwise, it's just absolutely immense. And it's going to grow exponentially in the next few years. We are so optimistic that I'm almost afraid to say what, what I think will happen in the next 10, 15 years, where more will be discovered with the help of these machines, um, these devices, these tools, these algorithms, um, the, uh, in the next 10 to 15 years than all of humanity combined for the last million years. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way I'm talking in general or specific to Alzheimer's specific in general and specific to Alzheimer's and brain health and, and, uh, and, and all of that combined our ability to understand the, 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 for example, and this might not have to do with uh, artificial intelligence, but it's large data analysis and, and, and it's mathematical models. Our ability to process things like four-dimensional structure of protein, how protein is created, a particular protein, and how it folds and how it changes over time. That's the four. And it, we have done more in the last five years than in decades before that. And that's going to increase even more. And once we know all of the protein structure of humanity and how to manipulate it, then we know how to treat diseases. That's just the protein side, not even the genomics and how to do the CRISPR and the new CRISPR methodology and all that. So, and that's going to come with these incredible AI tools and, and large data um, um, uh, structures that, that are going to open up everything. 
I'm just going to speak about the positive side because the negative side, we, we really don't know. But the positive side is just immense. Absolutely immense. Okay. We'll come back. We'll put a pin in neurodegenerative disease and how much we currently know. I'd love to sort of yes. understand maybe relative to cardiovascular disease where the current understanding is. And of course, it's it's an umbrella term, so I appreciate there's lots of different diseases and we might sort of step through a few of those. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Next one, true or false? This one's close close to uh, to my heart. Melbourne was your favorite place you visited in Australia. At the cost of making some friends and family members upset, I would say yes, <laughs> it was. I love Melbourne. I, and one of the things that I love about Melbourne is that the city was designed around human beings. You know, when you go to a city, sometimes 
buildings I prioritized or certain structures I prioritized, but I feel like human beings were prioritized in Melbourne because they have beautiful parks, beautiful places for people to hang out and have conversations, amazing restaurants. I love the culture. I love the cosmopolitan, you know, feel to it. it yeah, I, I can live in Melbourne. I, at, at the cost of potentially falling for the recency bias, uh, I would say we were talking about Melbourne being one of our favorite cities, period. Yes. We, we came out from Barcelona. We loved it. Of course, Florence, we loved it. And, uh, these are old European cities. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. But Melbourne had the modernity, mm-hmm. human-centered, nature-centered, yet modern, you know, and, and a modern touch as well. It's like they captured all transportation. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. For two people that didn't know the city at all, we got around everywhere. Yeah, we would just everywhere. jump on the bus and the, and the tram, train and yeah. go anywhere we wanted. It was amazing. And the people are so wonderful. Just everything yes. is wonderful. We had such a great time. I agree. <laughs> so, and, and on the, the design of the city, I've lived in both Melbourne and in Sydney. And I can tell you, you're certainly right. When they designed Melbourne, they did think of people. It's a, it's a perfect grid. It's so easy to navigate. Whereas Sydney, and partly that's because there's a lot of water, but there's a lot of one-way roads. And so... Most people know if you're coming to Sydney from an interstate, you're going to get lost. Oh, be, wow. be prepared to take some wrong turns. Oh, wow. Okay. We loved Sydney for a different reason. Yes, yes. Well. We, as soon as we landed, somebody on the, uh, in the hotel said, oh, are you guys here to see um, um, Sting. A Sting? I said, really, Sting? I said, when? What? It's a tonight at the, at the, uh, this, at one of the stadiums. Uh, stadiums yeah. I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to go get tickets. He said, no, it's sold out. So me being, I, I ran across, it was a mile away, got to the place, it was closed. I found the back door, went upstairs, found somebody, got tickets to the front row, <laughs> and we saw Sting, <laughs> yeah, which was, was epic. absolutely was epic. epic. Uh, absolutely epic. This is the m- most amazing 71-year-old I've ever seen in my life. Talk about healthy living. Yes, absolutely. Incredible. What's the what's the key to getting those last minute <clears throat> tickets? Begging, <laughs> begging, and acting, you know, and just just begging well. Yes. Yeah, and the accent probably helped as yeah. well. You'd come a long way. Okay. True or false? Olive oil can feature in a brain healthy diet. True. True, and it has nothing to do with how I feel about it. It's not my opinion. You and I have talked about this in the past. When you look at the dietary patterns that have been associated with improved cognition, the Mediterranean diet, the mind diet, olive oil was a part of it. Now, is it because of the replacement phenomenon that olive oil replaced sources of saturated fats like butter and margarine, or because of its innate quality of having high polyphenols and some other anti-inflammatory antioxidant effects? Um, We are now getting a little more information. There was a time when we didn't know. But now, because of, you know, very good studies and looking at particular uh, aspect of olive oil in a diet and the polyphenols that come along with it, it seems that the polyunsaturated fats and the polyphenol do play a positive role in brain health. I know that this this may not be very popular with some people, but I, I think we have enough data to say that, yes, olive oil can be a part of a healthy dietary pattern. Do you have any tips for kind of navigating the olive oil shelf? Something that I've been thinking about a little bit, and I'm not sure whether the research is sort of, there's enough resolution there to kind of determine is extra virgin olive oil significantly better than regular olive oil? 
Is there a benefit in choosing something that's higher in polyphenols? How would you kind of encourage someone to, to think about that if they're at the grocery store? Yeah, I'm, I've been struggling with that too. There's not very clear evidence and it's very difficult to know where our olive oil is coming from even though there's some you know like stamps and markers on the bottle it's it's difficult to know um but you know the quick and easy one would be to say just look at the date of manufacture you don't want it to be years before it was manufactured you want to grab bottles that are darker because it gets oxidized when it's exposed to light you want to make sure that if when you store it, it's closed properly and it's in a dark place, completely closed, not exposed to oxygen. And it's it's much better to get extra virgin olive oil that is cold pressed and made where you live rather than being imported from a different country because the um, the likelihood of this being fresher is higher when it's local. So for us, it would be California made extra virgin olive oil that is cold pressed preferably in Southern California, if we have that luxury. I know that the cost goes extremely high when, you know, you have to factor in all of these things, but those would be just the rough measures. Beyond that, I don't know of any good data to mm. kind of differentiate between good and bad extra virgin olive oil. Mm. And what about cooking temperature? There's lots of different ideas out there. I tend to use olive oil for almost all of my cooking, yeah. but um, is that the right approach or is there yeah. a certain temperature you should try and stick to i've changed my mind i've changed quite a bit um in the past few years just based on my reading um, there was a time when it was suggested not to cook it at all because of you know the high oxidative effect but now with some data uh, we actually know that it might not be true that extra virgin olive oil can be tolerated at higher temperatures so, you know, instead of just using it as a salad dressing, I'm actually starting to, you know, saute some vegetables in it or, you know, spray it on some tofu to cook very quickly in an oven. Um, but again, it, it, this is still evolving and I'm still learning, but I'm not really close-minded as far as not cooking with it at all or raising the temperature on it based on the newest data. Okay, next one is maybe controversial not really controversial but it could be that's why in, we're here it could be in certain circles <laughs> okay. yeah maybe we can create some controversy sure although the the, the catchphrase for this show is uh facts nuance and trustworthy recommendations over hyperbole so we would be going against that but um <laughs> it might help with ratings red meat being rich in vitamin b12 and iron and other micronutrients is an important food for promoting optimal brain health? Uh, no, uh, but we'll give it a little nuance. For transparency, we're vegans, we're plant-based um, for animals, for environment, but we wanna make sure that we're science-based so people can trust us, whether it's with fish or meat. The, this monosyllabic approach, this, uh, when it comes to health of saying this completely um, negating a, a, another food group is the only possible way of being healthy is wrong. Can you be healthy with certain amount of meat and, and especially non-processed? You know, yes, absolutely. Is it the optimal? Not necessarily, but the, this, this absolutist approach is, is wrong. It's not scientific. I mean, we would hope that people don't eat meat for other reasons as well. And it's not the most beneficial uh, form of food. 
But yes, it has B12. It has other uh, substances as well. So it's definitely controversial in our communities, but it's, it's the reality. Same thing with fish. Um, the, the data on fish is that, it, especially small fish, that it's helpful. We think that there's a lot missing in that data. There's a lot of nuance as far as toxins that accumulate that we don't measure. We only measure mercury and lead and, and, and even there inconsistently, but not thousands of other chemicals that bioconcentrate in these animals. But the data, the epidemiological data shows that people who eat fish, especially smaller fish, they're healthier in certain ways. It's really cognition out. But uh, so we have to have that nuance at the minimum for the sake of having data-driven conversations so that people can then trust each other across these, these silos that are being formed. Vegans, non-vegans, paleos, keto. And, and I think that's important. And, and the data kind of shows that as well. I think, like say, say someone who makes the claim that grass-fed beef is really important for, for brain health. I think if they were listening to this and they were going to push back, the thing that I often hear is they say, well, you're lumping grass-fed, finished, uh, regenerative beef in the same basket as hot dogs and ham people that are eating hot dogs and hamburgers, processed meats in a, a white um, sort of bread, bun or roll, etc. So they would say it's unfair. You don't, you're not actually independently looking at the effect of unprocessed red meat. What would you kind of say to I someone? I agree with them. Yeah. I agree with them. You can't lump um, hot dogs with grass-fed beef. But the next sentence should be, is grass-fed beef that much healthier? Or is it the healthiest form of you know, um, um, food to, to, to take in? I don't think so. I don't think it is the healthiest. It's healthier, yes, absolutely. And the degree of, of how much healthier is being exaggerated, there are biases people have. Just because they've, they're eating grass-fed meat, it doesn't mean it's that much healthier. We're, we're talking about the saturated fat levels change. We know that the hormonal and, and, and antibiotic elements change. A lot of other things change. But it's still not the healthiest food. So they're right that it's not fair to lump it all together. The same way that we talked about carbs being lumped in together. But, uh, but the exaggeration of it being that much, being a health food, I think that's, that's definitely hyperbole and exaggeration. And it's important to look at patterns, right? Yeah. I mean, in nutrition, you know how important it is for us not to focus or hone in on a single food product and just look at patterns. Nutrition research is not perfect. Uh, it's messy. It's getting better. I'm very hopeful with large data analysis and machine learning to actually even make that process better, where we know, where we understand the nuances, where we understand the um, the complexity of somebody's genetics and their biology and how it interacts with food. That time will come, and it's in the near future. But until then, I think we should basically rely on what we've learned over the last three, four, five decades as far as nutritional patterns are concerned. And when it comes specifically to red meat, when you look at dietary patterns that have been associated with, say, for example, lower risk of stroke, lower risk of Alzheimer's disease, lower risk of Parkinson's disease, and other neurodegenerative conditions, meat was not a part of it. Meat was always considered as something that would be associated with poor cognition. Now, how that meat was consumed, right, or what type of meat we're talking about, because meat is not just meat, there are multiple different kinds of meats, right? That has been studied a little bit so far, 
Um, for example, there was a paper um, that uh, was published in the UK Biobank, and they looked at processed meat versus red meat or unprocessed meats and its effect on cognition. So when you look at those kind of nuances, you can actually tell better. Those kind of research uh, uh, papers that have studied specifically the type of meat and a cognition outcome or dementia outcome, they, all, they always look at the end stage disease, which is dementia. Um, in most of these studies, um, it seems like red meat is a replacement for something. Um, when they compared in the UK Biobank study, when they compared processed meat with unprocessed meat, it seemed that processed meat increased the risk of dementia, but unprocessed meat didn't. It was actually associated with better outcomes. But when you look at the data closely, there is this problem of almost reverse causality, you know, where people who are frail, who are at the stage where they actually may not have the resources to buy better quality meat, they stick to unprocessed meats. But then people who have a healthy bias, you know, they have more money, socioeconomically, they're in a better position, they go for red unprocessed meat. Was it the unprocessed meat? Potentially could have been so many other different things that resulted in better, better cognition as well. So those are some of the flaws in our research that doesn't really help us understand this better. But generally speaking, um, if we kind of step outside of the realm of brain health and dementia, red meat is associated with increased LDL, which is a risk factor for dementia. It is associated with uh, uncontrolled blood pressure, which is a risk factor for dementia. And even insulin beyond resistance. insulin resistance, uh, and then even beyond central nervous system, increased risk of cancer, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So it's, it's, I think it's flawed to say red meat is necessary for brain health and it's healthy. It's, it's just that statement is wrong. We don't have any evidence for that. I want to make sure we come back to insulin resistance when we're talking about the kind of etiology of Alzheimer's in a little bit and some of the different hypotheses that are out there. What if someone, to continue this kind of conversation, said, Dean, Aisha, I hear what you're saying. And to preface this, I don't think this is a very strong argument, but it's something that could be put forward. How can a food like red meat that we evolved on eating that potentially is responsible for our brain rapidly developing, how can that be harmful for our brain over the long term? So that's a great question, but every question should be broken down to its elements. So to bring in anthropology and, and history uh, of human evolution into 21st century has flaws. Um, first of all, it would ass you're, you're, what are you comparing? Longevity, dementia risk, heart disease risk between those people and us? That's not even comparable because majority, if not all of the people who lived even let's say uh, 6,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, agriculture, as we know, it started 10,000, 10 to 12,000 years ago, but really our, our survival um, uh, length increased about 150 to 200 years ago. Dr. Snow, which found cholera in the, in the wells in, in England, and that's how epidemiology started. That's how disease prevention started. So up to 200 years ago, we wouldn't be living past 50. Before that, 30 and 40 was the average. So to compare data coming from us to, from times where people didn't live past 30 or 40 to now has no meaning, especially when you're comparing the final outcome, which is mortality, which is past 30 now, which is dementia, 
which would never have happened because those diseases happen after 30, 40, 50. Heart disease. So that comparison doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, the other flaw with this is, is the assumptions that, that go into this, that because they lived a certain way, that therefore they were healthier. We don't have that data. First of all, we don't have the data that they actually consumed a lot of meat. The bone data and feces data doesn't corroborate that. There, there's evidence that they were more grazers than hunters. That, that was just an uh, unnecessary uh, uh, name that was given to them. They were most of the time chasing berries more than bears. That's a, that point is often lost on people. And I think yeah. what I've read is that there might have been an overestimation of the amount of calories from animal foods because bones are preserved but the plant foods are not really preserved in these archaeological sites exactly exactly so so th th there's a lot of flaw in that kind of thinking both as far as the, the 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 comparisons the disease comparisons as far as what the data we have as far as what they were doing what they were eating so i think that argument does not work um in today's world right and i mean just to kind of go back to one point there you're not saying that they they weren't consuming meat people they were, humans yeah. were consuming meat but there's it's a very different question or thinking about longevity is a very different question to thinking about survival correct and the foods that help you survive may be completely different to the food or dietary pattern that's best for longevity and today we're we find ourselves in in an environment where we have much a wider suite of food choices to make Correct. a surplus yeah. okay true or false and i know that that you're well equipped to answer this one omega-3 fatty acids are the most important fat for the brain true so far to the best of our knowledge today they are and um, this comes from multiple different studies, um, studies that look at consumption of omega-3 fatty acids as food and also omega-3 fatty acids as supplementation. Dean and I published a couple of papers a couple of years ago looking at multiple different papers that have come out that look at omega-3 supplementation in, um, in two populations. Um, the majority of the studies were done in children and in elderly populations to see whether supplementation improved cognition, cognitive, you know, outcomes. Um, and they had different kind of neuropsychological testing endpoints yeah. end for children versus elderly. The data wasn't very clear. We don't have very clear outcomes, but there was a trend. There was a trend towards improved cognitive outcomes both in children and elderly when they had enough omega-3 fatty acids in their dietary patterns and when they supplemented if they needed it. And when you look at the pathophysiology of, say, let's talk about the elderly population. Um, as it happens, omega-3 fatty acids are necessary for maintaining the infrastructure of the neuron and the neuronal connections. As a matter of fact, 57% of our brain is made up of DHA. And it needs to be replaced on a regular basis. Our reservoir goes down significantly when we don't get enough of it. People always think that we need to eat fat. You know, brain is made out of fat. We need to eat fat. And cholesterol. Yeah, and, and cholesterol. cholesterol. 
yeah, it is made up of fat. You know, when you look at the dry weight of the brain, it's about 50% fat. Um, but the kind of fat matters. We don't need saturated fats. As a matter of fact, our brain doesn't have the capacity to internalize saturated fats or cholesterol. We do make enough cholesterol in the brain, in the neurons that would serve its purpose. But the one kind of fat that we need on a regular basis is the long chain fatty acids, omega-3. And is there a, a kind of amount that you would recommend for people of different ages or, or what, what, I know that you supplement in your, your life. How do you approach that? Again, the data is not clean. Um, the data is flawed by two factors. We only saw signal later in life and in early life. And it doesn't mean that in midlife, it's not beneficial. It's just that in midlife, the, the, our ability to detect delta, our ability to detect change, <clears throat> as, as far as cognition is concerned, is not good because there's an incredible amount of cognitive reserve, which means that our cognitive capacity is good enough that even if there, when there's vacillation, it's so minimal to not be able to be detected by the tools we have. That's a little complicated. But midlife, we probably are affected significantly by omega-3, but we don't have the tools to detect the change that well. I want to put a, a pin on this comment because I think this is one of the concepts that is not really discussed in all of the different conversations about brain health and health in general. Just because we don't see a signal during midlife about something or when if people feel fine doesn't necessarily mean that we don't lay the foundation of disease during that that period. Sorry, I just want to come. Oh, like it's beautiful. Really high. Well, that's that similar to so cardiovascular disease. Correct. But even more so for heart, uh, for the brain. Uh, the brain infrastructure, 87 billion neurons, billions and trillions of connections. This is the infrastructure that you're creating after the age of 21. Before that, it's the, it's the cells, growth of cells. In fact, there are some programs, cell death around age five or so, so that uh, you, have, you end up with less cells. But the connections are built thereafter. And much of the connections are related to your environment, how much you're challenged, a bunch of stuff. But also the myelination continues all the way to early 20s. So now you have the, what they call brain capacity. But cognitive capacity, these are arbitrary terms that are created to describe certain things. Cognitive capacity is the connectivity of the neurons, the infrastructure. Imagine a building, a huge building, that's held up by billions of pillars. And so if a few of them are knocked down, nobody sees any difference from outside. Which means cognition hasn't necessarily changed in a way that would be yeah. observable. Observable. The building is functioning. Nobody sees any difference, but the pillars are being knocked down one at a time in, in your 20s. I want this to be emphasized because it's very difficult for us to emphasize brain health to younger people. We're writing a third book and, and a huge segment of it, actually more than a third, is around children and, and young adults and their brain capacity. And those pillars are foundational. We're knocking them down or building them in our 20s. So everything you eat, every, your exercise, everything determines those pillars. So the, the pillars are knocked down, knocked down, knocked down. And then in your 60s, now there are enough pillars knocked down where you start seeing the wavering. So I think in that example, you 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 mentioned a building, so a pillars yes. in a building, right? And so if that building falling down is sort of synonymous with cognition um, impairment, right? Correct. Being observable. Now, you can take a peek into that building. You could do an inspection and notice, okay, some of these pillars are, have been knocked down. Yes. We, we might want to get on the front foot here 
before this thing falls down. Yes. And <clears throat> maybe that's something we'll come back to because I, I know a lot of people will be interested in, okay, I'm, I'm 30, I'm 40. What can I measure? What am I, are there biomarkers or tests or scans that I can do in my brain that will tell me, hey, you're on the, you're on the road to Parkinson's or you're on the road to Alzheimer's dementia or Huntington's, whatever it may be. I think it's the most critical topic that we should be speaking about because it's in our, in our 30s that it's not just that we're avoiding disease, but we're actually building capacity. Yes. That's been our focus in the last few years. Uh, it's not just Alzheimer's, but younger people. The, how do you t get the signals to the young people to show that, oh, look, you're losing some capacity here or you're gaining capacity? That's, that's something because if you don't have those markers, people are not motivated. Motivation is, 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 a, is a complex thing when, you, when your life is driven by other factors when you're younger. But it's, that's when it starts, especially when it comes to your brain. Um, and, and, and it's foundational. So now when we looked at the data with omega-3, one of the factors, just one of many, um, we, we didn't see any, most of the papers came back negative because the population they had included were younger people. The, we didn't have the tools of detecting signal, but we know that it affects them as much if not more. What we did see signal, and I'm gonna get to the dosage, was later in life, or even pre-dementia patients called MCI, or mild cognitive impairment patients, which have a much higher proclivity for dementia. And these populations, you did see an effect. Omega-3 did have an effect, DHA. And it was at higher doses. And the second flaw with a lot of studies were, they, they never saw signal because the doses were lower. Dosage problem, and we were gonna talk about uh, uh, other uh, studies that with choline and other things where the dosage comes to us from many years ago accidentally, but nobody focused at dose studies. They were looking at effect studies. So in that population, the higher doses were the, the, the dose that saw signal, 1,000 milligrams, 1,500 milligrams. So um, it's, it's not definitely not definitive as far as the dose, but we went on the higher dose as far as omega-3 is concerned. One of the other things I've thought about those trials, but it goes across nutrition trials in general, is the importance of knowing someone's baseline levels of DHA or APA that in the study, um, because you could give everyone one gram of DHA EPA, but the levels achieved at an individual level through that study are going to be vastly different. And so another approach would be to somehow personalize the dose for each participant to achieve a given DHA or omega-3 index, and then to say, okay, well, if you get to X percent, uh, like five, 6% omega-3 index, whatever dose that is for you, personalized dose, then you're going to have lower risk. It'll be another way of looking at it. Absolutely. I think we're learning more and more that not everybody achieves a particular level if they're given a particular dose. Um, from the studies done in uh, the APOE4 um, allele population. So say, for example, if ha someone has one copy of apolipoprotein uh, 4, which is, has been associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, they've seen that when they have APOE4, they don't necessarily transport DHA as much as non-APOE4 allelic uh, participants do. So that nuance and that personalization depends on so many different factors. Are we there yet? No, we're not. 
we don't know. We don't have enough data to be able to prescribe and personalize a specific nutritional pattern or whatever whatever needs that a person um, has for preventing Alzheimer's disease. And to tie this concept to the question that you asked before, like what do people, what do, what should people do? Like you're a younger person and now you know a lot about brain health. Where do you start from? What kind of biomarkers are there? So the answer to that question is it has multiple tiers, right? So generally speaking, just the awareness that you have to take care of your lifestyle, what you eat, how you move, how you sleep, how you keep your mind active is very important. And that should be spread out as far as, you know, in the form of a public health announcement is concerned. And then going deeper into more personalized um, and more detailed and more nuanced approaches to personalized uh, medicine for brain health is concerned, there, there are some flaws in there. You know, there are some companies and some physicians who are kind of taking this way too far and extrapolating way beyond the data and recommending things that are not really based well into science. But um, we have enough data as far as vascular risk markers are concerned. So for example, if you have blood pressure, high blood pressure, and that blood, high blood pressure is, believe it or not, anything over 120 millimeters of mercury for systolic and anything above 80 millimeters of mercury, the diastolic. If your blood pressure is one, over 120 over 80, that's a problem. Which is a lot of people. Huge. A lot of people. I think the numbers are crazy. Even in, in the United States, I'll stick to our country, in the United States... People between the ages of 18 to 39, 24, 25% of them have high blood pressure. Just, just think about that. They need to be on a medication, right? So those are easily modifiable things. Not, I, I shouldn't say easily. You know, for some people, it might actually be related to some underlying disorder that may need some treatment or something of that nature. So knowing your blood pressure, knowing your LDL cholesterol, we've talked about this in the past. High LDL has been correlated with cognitive impairment and cognitive decline during midlife as well as later on in life. Making sure that people understand what their hemoglobin A1C is, which is a marker of glucose metabolism, what their fasting glucose monitor is. That doesn't mean everybody should be wearing a continuous glucose monitor, but you know, having an idea of what your glucose metabolism is, cholesterol is, blood pressure is, making sure that your vitamin B12 levels are checked, making sure that your vitamin D levels are checked. Those are some of the surface level, easily modifiable risk factors that are available now. And then when it comes to, say, for example, omega-3 fatty acid metabolism, knowing your APOE4 status, and even going deeper down into things like, how does my body metabolize vitamin D? Do I have enough vitamin, active vitamin D available for my brain to use it, to think better, to function better? Those are a little more you know, nuanced things that are available. But I always fear of you know, some of these companies taking advantage of people and selling them things that are not really based on science so far. I think we, we maybe spoke about APOE4 testing previously, and maybe you've changed your view, maybe you haven't. But um, I think at the time you thought, unless you're really, really curious, it might not be that it might not be worth the money and the stress because there's not a lot of action you could take that would be different to someone who doesn't know their APOE4 status. Um, has that changed? Like, if it, say, for example, I tested and I had one copy or two copy of APOE4, would that information help me make different decisions? We have different opinions on this. Um, I, would say, I would say yes and no. Yes, because now we're realizing, as I mentioned earlier, 
that, say for example, your need for omega-3 fatty acids or your decision of adding fat or not adding fat to your diet, whether it's polyunsaturated fats or omega-3 fatty acids. I won't, I won't say saturated fats because I think there's almost like you know, a, a direct relationship between saturated fats and poor uh, brain health. But the need for adding fat and all those kind of small little decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis may change on our understanding of having one or two copies of ApoE4. Oh boy, you started a big, big problem here in this family. <laughs> Look what you did. Simon. Right, so if someone's listening right now yeah. who has one copy or right. two copies of ApoE4 and they are sort of trying to connect the dots here. Right. So my original question was how much omega-3 we should be taking. Yes. Am I right in that you're saying if you have a copy of ApoE4 or two copies of ApoE4, you're, you actually may require more DHA and EPA to achieve the same level in the brain? That's the trend and our understanding. Mm-hmm. That's the pattern. We had a conversation with Dr. Hussein Yassin, who runs the lab at USC, and that's his primary focus. And he's so amazing. I think he said more I don't knows in our conversations than anybody else I've heard because mm-hmm. he's a true scientist. But I think that is the trend. It seems that the reason why we haven't seen any results in previous research studies when people were given an omega-3 supplementation and it didn't work was not because it didn't work. It actually may not have worked because it probably was a low dose. A 250 milligrams of DHA supplementation did nothing. But now that they're actually, there's, there's another study coming up and hopefully we'll have the results very soon, they've increased that dose to one gram two grams, mm-hmm. sometimes even four grams for people who carry two uh, copies of ApoE4. So we'll mm-hmm. know. Uh, a lot of times we forget about the, the unsexy but incredibly important factors like blood pressure or, or LDL. Um, when we did the, we, we lead one of the largest community-based projects in the country, the African-American churches here. And, and when we did a, a fair, we gave one thing away to the community, blood pressure machines. Yeah. That's an easy, correctable, understandable thing that it's a, it's a biomarker, talk about biomarker, a blunt biomarker that tells you so much more. And then the next thing was LDL. And, and so, so those are the important things to focus on. Now, the nuance of beyond that, yeah, for the, somebody that's motivated, it, it can have two, it's a two-edged show. Because right now, yes, so the only thing we can do is maybe increase our omega-3. Even that's not fully clear. But, but my worry is that if you're going to spend all that money, all these companies are making money off of you of omega-3 uh, levels and, 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 and all these, uh, and APOE4 le- uh, status, what happens is every time you forget something, you have nothing to do. You can't do anything about it. But it's going to create a f- self-fulfilling prophecy kind of, this anxiety, this worry, and it just accumulates because, and, and I've had patients and I've seen thousands of patients, so, uh, and, and I've seen people who have tested themselves and then none of them have I seen the knowledge of APOE4 being of benefit. And every one of them, it was a focus of anxiety. I tell people, assume you have risk, and we all do. If it's not APOE4, it's something else. And, and just live healthfully. So at this point, but we will be around the corner in a few years, five years, where we will have personalized uh, adaptations. Uh, that's the blessing and the curse of working with human beings. When you're a physician... You have all of this knowledge, you have all of this conversation with people, and then you're able to look at statistical significance versus clinical significance. 
And that's one area that is not really talked about a lot. Just because we have a p-value of 0.001, less than 0.101, doesn't necessarily mean that a person goes from not driving, not being able to write a check, not being able to do their laundry, not being able to turn off the stove at night and lock their door to someone who's completely fine and does all of these things, you know? So um, we as neurologists and as public health advocates, we want to make sure that people understand the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. And a lot of the conversation that is going on in the background, they're not out there to that level where it makes a clinical significance. Right. I can see your, your, to your point, someone attributing any forgetfulness uh, or, or brain fog to the, the fact they have one or two copies of APOE4 and then yes. that's being very <clears throat> anxiety provoking for a certain person, which I think is probably the majority of people. I can think of a few people I know who probably if they tested and found out they had two copies based on their mindset, it would just be really empowering and they'd go all in on the lifestyle changes yeah. and that would be something that convinces <clears throat> them to actually start being a bit more uh, proactive with their yes. health. And, and so I can see maybe there is someone who needs that push. Yes. Um, but I, I, I definitely see the, the, the circumstance where it could be anxiety provoking. My question here on that, which is an, an interesting um, sort of sidestep is what is a normal level of forgetfulness or brain fog for someone who's in their 30s or 40s that is baseline and is normal and shouldn't lead to people sort of freaking out? What a great question. Um, because it's at this point, I should say I don't know. As I just said, a good scientist would say I don't know. But I'm going to delve in because we have a podcast. <laughs> We have to say something, something, right? No, because otherwise I'll be sitting here saying, I don't know, that's a great scientist. But but no, but reality is it's a great question because um, if there's any change, and the change should be not, not be detected just by you, but by people that know you. If there's any change from a baseline, it's a it's a point of worry. Now that worry doesn't mean you have the beginnings of dementia. It could be that the anxiety level is bad or your, your life is overwhelming, or focus is affected. I say that focus is the gatekeeper of consciousness, and focus is the first thing that affects your cognition, memory, and everything else. And, and the other part of this is if you fix focus, you open up a doorway to incredible cognitive capacity. Not focus, fix focus, but improve focus. So that's, that's one. I have to think that focus is taking a hit across the board with mobile phones and the, the algorithms that are just mm-hmm. getting better and better to kind of draw us in. No, th- th- that's why this makes this beautiful question. So if there's a delta, if there's a change from a baseline that you detected yourself or others detected or both, then it should be investigated because the first thing people do and people come to me all the time for this and I've detect, oh, there's depression. That's the most common. Anxiety. That's the second most common. Third is they're just overwhelmed. Uh, fourth is medications, certain medications that affect their focus. and things right. like that. So depression itself as a condition will increase forgetfulness and brain fog? Well, depression, when we talk about the different kind of dementias, there's a dementia, although it's less popularly used now, it's called pseudo-dementia. Not pseudo as in false, but, but it's, uh, it's, it's not a degenerative dementia or a permanent dementia related to depression. People have severe depression. Their depression is so bad that they can't do their daily activities. When you speak to them, I had one patient, the depression was so bad that they couldn't maintain alertness and focus to the end of the sentence. N- not a single sentence could be finished 
because it would be interrupted by that depression, by anxiety, by, by, by loss of focus. That's the extreme. But imagine the whole spectrum. So any level of depression is going to affect your, your focus, your memory, things of that nature. Lack of sleep, uh, uh, pain. Pain is another important one. So if somebody's having any change in their memory, they should figure out if it's related to any of those. And if it's not related to those, the next thing is metabolic stuff, thyroid. A very common, in fact, one of the, one of the things approved by, 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 by insurance in the United States, one of the few things is B12 and thyroid as markers of cognitive decline. So check their thyroid. That could be hypothyroidism is, is one of those. And, and then B12, low B12 levels is another one. So the answer in short, although I went long, is if there's any change from baseline, investigate because it's a reversible thing usually. Okay. And point being there is that it's not always a neurodegenerative process. It could be a bunch of things. Correct. Correct. And, and treatable things. By the way, if they're, if they're treatable and you leave them like as, as, the way they are, it can get worse to the point that, that it becomes a neurodegenerative process. For example, sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is obstruction of, um, of oxygenation during sleep because of blockage or, or central sleep apnea. So there are studies that show that as, uh, sleep apnea, untreated, can increase your risk of dementia significantly. Some people study says 70% and others, but it's significantly. So that's a treatable thing either with weight loss, with surgery, or more commonly with these devices that can, uh, and that's completely true. But if it's not treated, then it becomes first attention and focus, fatigue, mood disorders, even stroke and heart disease, but definitely cognitive decline in dementia. Mm -hmm. Just to tie the, the loop, close the loop on omega-3s, I'm not sure if you saw this. I saw recently Dr. Clapper, who I listen to quite a bit. I find him to be quite engaging and a friendly, very friendly guy. Uh, he had been sort of quite vocal uh, that he didn't recommend omega-3 supplementation for a while. And, and his sort of rationale for that was it was a, a small effect of increased risk of prostate cancer. Now, we could debate whether that's clinically meaningful and is that reason not to supplement. But I did find it interesting. He put up a video recently. I'm not sure if you saw it. Yes, yes. He had... Uh, stopped DHA supplementation himself. I, was, I, I really admired the fact that he put this video together because he's changed his view. I, I, we love that. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a true scientist. We were in a, in a, in a conference with him and he, he's a lovely human being. Uh, probably one of the best human beings you can imagine. But, and the fact that he's open to data. Yeah. Yeah. That's yes. the most important thing. So for the listeners, he had... Uh, stopped DHA supplementation. He was testing his omega-3 index. He saw it was falling. It went below 4%. And 4% is like the average level. might not even be the optimal. Um, you know, Japanese populations who have very low risk of cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative disease are at about 8%. It is an association. Um, and often that sort of between 6 and 8% is where people say you should try and target. And he got this low result. And I thought it was interesting. He, he ran another experiment where he increased his flaxseed and chia seed and all of these plant-based sources of omega-3s that contain ALA. And so the scientist in him was wanting to see, well, if I just eat more of that, will my body convert more of the ALA to the DHA and I can get this number back up? And unfortunately, it 
went down. It continued to go down, track down without that direct source of DHA for him and his biology. So he was kind of left with the decision of, you know, does he want to take the risk with a really low omega-3 index and potentially increase his risk of, of neurodegenerative disease? And he decided to re, um, restart the supplementation. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. We, we admire him for that, for, for his ability to change with data. Definitely. We had a conversation. He, he was at our home a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, yeah. yeah speaking about this very topic, and we were pro-omega-3, and uh, so we're happy that, um, that uh, he's doing that because we think it, it is that important. People should um, know that omega-3 is that critical for brain health. And he said he was taking, so, so that listeners uh, know, about 550 milligrams per day of DHA EPA. I take a little bit more. I think mine might be 850 milligrams, but um, not too far away. Okay. We're still on the true or false segment here. Oh, great. I love this. (laughs) This is the last true or false, and uh, you mentioned choline. So true or false, choline is an important micronutrient for brain health, and people eating plant-based diets do not consume enough choline um so that's a very important question um i don't i don't know if i should say true or false i'm not going to actually choose a an answer for this because we're still learning more about it i think we 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 had a conversation about this uh during our last conversation the way choline was recommended as an important nutrient like the basis for why it was considered important is not stable enough for us to basically put a flag on it yes it is important you know it is important in the production of phosphatidylcholine which plays a very important role in creating the infrastructure of the neurons and the nerves and its connections but we don't have enough objective evidence to actually put choline in a recommended daily allowance categories. We don't actually have an RDA for choline and we have adequate intake, an AI. And that comes from the fact that we don't have enough established evidence to show the level of choline recommended for human beings to have healthier brains. I'm going to stick to my field, which is neurology and neuroscience. The studies that have that have been conducted on choline and cognitive outcomes were essentially done in very, very sick people where, for example, they had certain diseases that resulted in low choline intake. And when the choline was less than 50 milligrams, as far as their intake is concerned, they had health problems. They had cognitive problems. And then when it was replaced with very high doses of choline, I believe it was 500 milligrams. When it was replaced with 500 milligrams, they tended to reverse those problems, right? So my problem with that study is, first of all, it was done in a population that was very sick. You can't really generalize that into a healthy human population. And second, knowing the dose of choline that could potentially reverse that was not tested properly. So we have nothing between 50 and 500 milligrams. It wasn't tested at all. And so right now, I think that adequate intake is considered 550 milligrams for men. And I think it's 425 milligrams for women, maybe a little bit higher for women who are pregnant and lactating and so on and so forth. Um, so, so that's the data that we have. 
and it's being hammered by different people of how important it is. And most of the high choline containing foods are red meat and animal products that could potentially have high saturated fats as well. But when you look at the population studies, you know, um, on the other side, you see that people who have relatively lower intake of choline in the form of plants and vegetables and fruits and whole grains, they actually tend to do very well. They have lower risk of stroke. They have lower risk of cardiovascular disease and dementia as well. So there's a discrepancy with what is being recommended and what we actually know about the impact of choline on brain health. So I would say right now we really don't have objective evidence that choline or high doses of choline is important for brain health. Okay. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Clarifies a lot. Wow. And I, I would add and sort of extend on one thing that you said there to, I guess, give people another sort of degree of confidence here is if plant-based eaters were not consuming enough choline, and maybe you could argue that adequate is different to optimal and how much you need to prevent uh, poor liver health or fatty liver is mm-hmm. different to to cognition, granted, but... We know that if you are deficient in choline, then there's a much higher risk of fatty liver. Mm-hmm. And so we would expect when you look at plant-based populations to see an increased risk of fatty liver. Um, and you don't see that. You see the exactly. opposite. Exactly. Very and true. then the other end of the spectrum is that high levels of choline have been associated with certain problems, whether it's cardiovascular and, and others as well. The, uh, so uh, the, the data, as Aisha said, is not clear. And then one other factor that we were just looking at today, I mean, even plant-based sources of choline, you get, I mean, from soy and yeah, you can uh, broccoli and from others. tofu and whole grains and uh, Christopher's vegetables. So it's not like choline is non-existent in plants, you know. A lot of healthy foods have choline in them as well. Okay, yeah, I'm not adding it to my supplementation regime just yeah, yet. Exactly. I, would need to, I would need more data to Same, be convinced yes. of that. Maybe if I was a woman who was pregnant, depending on my diet, then it might be a little bit more necessary. Yeah. 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 And prenatal vitamins, vitamins actually tend to have a higher level of choline. So, you know, it kind of meets their needs. Okay. I want to double click on some of these neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's dementia, or some of the other forms of dementia that perhaps we haven't spoken too much about previously and Parkinson's, Huntington's, etc. So maybe just to kind of set the stage for that, you could just define what neurodegenerative disease actually means if someone's hearing that for the first time and is thinking, oh, that's a broad term, what does that encompass? And within that, what we're most likely to experience? What are the top neurodegenerative diseases that are affecting people in Western countries? Yes. So that's uh, neurodegenerative diseases uh, are diseases that, uh, happen at an accelerated rate of cellular death. Um, it's usually a process that's initiated um, uh, years before the, the onset of the symptoms, but then at some point they become accelerated and the cell loss is significantly more than what you would see in normal age. How you differentiate the different kind of neurodegenerative diseases is twofold, actually threefold. One is timeline, certain ones are very fast. That's not the most common. The other ones are um, the type of, of um, the proteins that accumulate 
or are part of the disease process, whether it's alpha-synuclein and Parkinson's and Lewy body disease and Lewy body disease, or it's uh, amyloid or tau. And, and so those, those pathologies tell you what, what are the causes and also location early on. In fact, when people come to me for, or for us uh, for in, a, in a clinic when they're having early or even late disease, we usually have a family member there. And, and the first questions we ask is, when do you think this all started? And they say, oh, I don't know, maybe five years ago when they started having some, uh, some problems. And what was the first signs? If it's memory problems, especially short-term memory, disproportionate to long-term memory, then it's more likely to have been Alzheimer's time. And so with dementia, it's not like other systemic diseases where you can get a biopsy and say from the biopsy what the disease is. You can do that in humans as well. If you take a biopsy, it can tell you a lot. I, did, I looked at a thousand brains when we were, I was doing a fellowship at UCSD, looking at Lewy body, but we don't do that. We have to look at a consortium of, of things. One of the most important parts is history. And with frontotemporal dementia, it's different. Usually it's behavioral or language type. And those are the two main categories. And with Lewy body disease, it's movement disorder and uh, and cognitive together. Lewy body being another form of another dementia. form of dementia. Yeah. With vascular dementia, it stepwise declines. The person is fine, and then they had a little decline. Decline. Oh, oh, I remember that in June something happened, and they they had so that's one of the things. Or they had a major stroke. So the the original stories give you a picture into what this could have been. With with Alzheimer's, why is it that it's typically short term memory that's first affected? Ah, because the, the first area that's affected is the temporal lobe, specifically the hippocampus or the memory, uh, memory centers of the brain. Those are the areas that are first affected. In most of these neurodegenerative conditions, it, the, the symptoms or the presentation is related to which part of the brain being affected first. Like, for example, in the frontotemporal lobe dementia, it's the frontal lobe. That's why people tend to have behavioral problems. They have disinhibition. They have fears. They have changes in their personality. So it's super interesting. Well, not not. I mean, it's not pleasant for the patients, but it's interesting for the neurologist and the neuroscientist to actually depict the changes in the brain. And when you look at the the structural and the functional changes in the brain too, it's in very specific areas of the brain. And what's short term? Is that me? forgetting where I put my keys half an hour ago? Is that forgetting who I spent time with the day before and I had lunch with? It's a, such a common question because when my, my, my patients, especially the men say, Dean, I'm fine. I can remember 50 years back. It's just the breakfast I forget sometimes or where I lose the keys. That's short-term memory. And, and ironically, they, the long-term memory is preserved, Not, at least at the beginning. What happens with these diseases, they're all at the end or in a few years, they all start looking the same because it starts involving all of the brain, right? It's the beginning that they're different. So short-term memory is breakfast, it's the keys being lost, it's a name that you were just told and you forget, but multiple of them. So those are short-term memory elements. It's fascinating because when these patients come into the clinic, some of the Alzheimer's, mild Alzheimer's disease patients are the most eloquent, most friendly, like you would not be able to tell that they At have all. Alzheimer's disease. They will start speaking to you about 20 years ago and all details. the details of their, say for example, what kind of projects they did, what kind of places they went to, what kind of events they had. But then you talk to them and then you ask them what year it is or what is the day today 
or where do they live and they have no recollection of that. With frontotemporal lobe dementia patients, uh, one variant of it, for example, we know that um, Bruce Willis was, the, the te- uh, was found to have frontotemporal, but uh, semantic or language variety. So they're fine, they're working, they're doing everything, but the, the, they can't find words. There are two kinds of language disorders. But the behavioral ones or, or executive function ones, their memory is fine. In fact, when you do the testing, their memory was fine, they've been doing everything, but they just forget the basic steps of how to program the TV or even, even less complex, how to manage their checks. How to drive, they get in a car, they forget how to go through the process. So the frontal lobe executive, and that's a clue that's more frontal lobe. That sounds very frustrating to find yourself in that position if you have the available cognition to recognize what's happening. Yes, it's the most frustrating thing I've ever seen. And, and, and it's, 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 a, it's a lonely journey because most of these people, they're all, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, they've a lot of my patients are people that have had interesting lives, all of them, I mean, great lives. And now they are not able to do the basic things. And a lot of times families don't recognize that. They don't know what's going on. And it's absolutely devastating. For me, the most, the, the, the reason I get upset very much, I've become a very negative and a pessimistic person. Well, not, but I'm, I'm a nice person, but I, I get upset. about you. it is it is true especially in the realm of alzheimer's disease when you hear all of these you know individuals out there spreading misinformation about brain health and alzheimer's disease they haven't sat across an alzheimer's patient they haven't sat across their family to see how frustrated they can get and they're just grabbing onto things whatever is in front of them to see if it can help right so you can't give them false hope about this disease being reversed and that's why whenever somebody says reversing alzheimer's disease like be very careful with what you say because you're playing with people's hopes. So dementia, it's this umbrella term. Alzheimer's dementia is the most common form. Is that like 60 or 70%? Exactly, exactly. And then then we have vascular dementia, which is about 10 to 20%. And, and vascular dementia is not a neurodegenerative condition, but correct. it is a major category of dementias. Yeah, because a, a neurodegenerative meaning that a process within the cells that slowly kills cells. And, and vascular... It's, it's little mini strokes kind of a phenomenon. And we'll talk about so that. So different underlying mechanism, but sort of manifests in a similar way by affecting the Correct, brain. correct. And then we have frontotemporal lobe dementia, which is about 15% or so. Then we Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's dementia. And then we have all these other categories, which is multi-system atrophy, which are faster, much faster. They're a combination of Parkinson's and autonomic dis- uh, problems and movement disorders and cognition all in one, but in rapid form in three, four, five years. And then you have Huntington's dementia and, and then lots of other um, uh, smaller categories, post-traumatic or um, metabolic alcohol. Yeah, Wernicke's-Korsakoff syndrome, which is an alcohol. Um, yeah. And what about early onset Alzheimer's? Often that is a, is a phrase that I've come across. What does that actually mean? By definition, 65 and below. So um, anybody who develops dementia before age of 65, they call it early onset. A great majority of those are Alzheimer's type, the one type that I was talking about earlier, which is presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and APP. There are familial groups, like in, in Columbia University, huge communities that when you go there, you see 50-year-olds, a bunch of them in, in the same families who have this. But there's a lot of people that spontaneously develop 
this 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 anomaly, this this uh, genetic uh, abnormality, and and it's a smaller proportion, uh, three to five percent of all Alzheimer's, all dementia, and it's um, a little bit more rapid. Um, and uh, and the other thing about this is, and and the early all, uh, onset frontotemporal lobe is also earlier than Alzheimer's. So for the audience, if the symptoms are starting before 65, it could be early onset, it could be frontotemporal lobe dementia, but it could be other things as well, alcohol-related, you know, Wernicke-Korsakoff, uh, autoimmune diseases. There's um, these autoimmune diseases that can cause this, as a, for example, Hashimoto's um, disease in a small percentage that can de develop dementia and then perineoplastic disorders. So there are other disorders as well, besides the early onset Alzheimer's that can cause this. If you have a parent who has frontotemporal dementia, how, what is your chance of following in their footsteps and also experiencing that? With frontotemporal lobe dementia, it's more genetically driven. There are several genes and there is a little bit higher propensity of familial translation, you know, a, a connection, not a, a much greater than Alzheimer's, but, but definitely a higher rate, but, the, but spontaneous genetic variants are more that, that we're talking about, uh, uh, ORF9 and, and, and others that, that are more common in frontotemporal lobe dementia. And, and with frontotemporal lobe dementia, there's also a variant that is connected to ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, motor neuron disease. So whenever you see frontotemporal lobe dementia, a small percentage, about 5 to 10%, also have motor neuron disease. Mm, yeah, there's been a, a, a lot of awareness raised in Australia about motor neuron disease. A, a footballer, um, Neil Danaher, he was diagnosed, I think, 10 years ago, so a, a while, and still seems to be... Uh, remaining really positive he's, he's a really cheerful guy and he set up fight uh, MND which is a kind of charity organization raising funds they've raised I think 60 plus million dollars wow. at this stage to, in hope of you know funding research that maybe can find a cure I mean, ALS, um, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, is, is a devastating disease, usually rapid within three to five years, but people have, have lived with it longer. Um, we're talking about uh, Stephen Hawkins, the physicist who lived with it for more than 40, 50 years. Um, um, the, uh, and it's, it's uh, where they start losing their, their ability to control their muscles, their peripheral muscles, sometimes m most often even bulbar muscles, which is breathing and swallowing. So they have to be is intubated. That what they usually die from respiratory yeah. failure. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's a tragic condition. It is tragic. It and is, we, yeah, we know very horrifying. little, to be honest, even at this point, as far as its causation, there are many different mechanisms, genetic superoxide dismutase, FUS genes, and others that people are looking at. Uh, but the, the, the true nature of it is still a little bit of an enigma. Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, and if listeners are confused, because I think the terminology is slightly different in the United States to Australia, you, over here you tend to use ALS as sort of the main umbrella term. In Australia, I believe MND is used, but ALS is like the most common form of that. It is. That's right. It yes. is, exactly, yes. That's right. um, coming back to dementia, actually all of these conditions, if someone's listening thinking, okay, what's, what is my chance? Is, is it a one in 10 chance I'm going to get d dementia? Is it a one in, in, in what chance am I going to get Parkinson's? Can we, can we sort of... Yeah. Um, <clears throat> 
put some perspective around this, uh, around the likelihood that's, that someone's going to experience some of these sort of more common neurodegenerative diseases? The average person, um, this is not a person that lives a particularly healthy lifestyle, but the average person, one in nine individuals over the age of 65 develop dementia and Alzheimer's type. And then after the age of 85, 50%, 47, but 50% develop uh, dementia and most likely Alzheimer's type dementia. Um, and it's, uh, it's very prevalent, very common, and, it, and, and it's becoming more common for two reasons. One is we are ling- living longer, although not in U.S. Our uh, age uh, uh, actually dropped from uh, 80 to 78 to now 76, going towards that. But, but the other reason is we're surviving other diseases from cardiovascular disease and cancers and HIV and other things. So we're living to the point where we're more at risk of developing these diseases. And the third factor is we're living less healthy. We, we believe that, and there's data, it's not a matter of belief, that lifestyle is a big, big contributor of this. We think as much as 80% of this is lifestyle related. Um, and it's, it has to do with food we eat, with the way we interact, how much we move, the stress levels in our lives, um, lack of sleep or proper sleep, and then mental activity. These are the factors, and alcohol and cigarette smoking are other, other factors, especially alcohol. Uh, cigarette, it's been reduced globally, but alcohol is a big factor. Those are the contributors and, and reversible contributors to risk of dementia. And I think it's important for the audience to know, and this might just be a refresher because we've talked about this in the past, the proportion of people who tend to have a genetically driven disease is much less than those who have a lifestyle driven disease, especially when it comes to Alzheimer's disease. It's not even, you know, it's not 50-50. If somebody has the genes or the type of Alzheimer's disease that is purely genetically driven, it's between three to 5% only. The rest of it is all lifestyle. Those are the genes that typically would drive early onset Alzheimer's? That's correct. That's exactly. correct. So Which those is are the presenilin. Presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and amyloid precursor protein, or APP. Mm. And that happens to a very, very mm. small population. So I think some people may confuse that with APOE4, which probably gets a little bit more airtime. So what yeah. happens to someone's risk if they have one copy of APOE4 or two copies of? So if you have one copy of APOE4, your risk goes up as much as three to four times. If you have two copies, your risk goes up as much as 10 to 12 times. But does that mean that people who have APOE4, two APOE4 alleles, which is about 2% of population in the United States, they all get dementia? No, 50% never develop dementia. And it's related to lifestyle. As the data is shows that it, it's related to lifestyle. Um, the Nigerian study actually showed this, and other studies have shown this. That, uh, And then mechanistically, although we're, we're, we kind of push, push back on mechanistic explanation of things, it's a good thing to have. But what is the function of APOE4? APOE4 is one of its functions. It's not the only function people simplify. One of its is lipid transport, fat transport. Right, it's the APOB equivalent in Correct. the brain. Exactly. Correct. Yes. Exactly. And, and, and we know what it does in the brain. When it's in the brain, it doesn't do its job well. And, and our relationship with lipids, especially LDL, matter because of one of the reasons APOE4. So uh, even the second highest penetrant genes, and I'll explain what penetrance means. <clears throat> if something, if a gene is 100% penetrant, it means it's going to manifest uh, in our life at a particular time. For example, the Huntington's gene. It's on chromosome 4. It's a sad, sad disease, and it's uh, and it's repeats of CAG uh, codon, 
And if there's a certain number of them, it's almost guaranteed that this, this parent had it, their child now has it, we know at what age they're going to develop uh, Huntington's disease. Usually it's in the 30s or so. Um, <clears throat> with Alzheimer's, it's just that, that 3 to 5%. The rest are not 100% penetrance. It's much lower. Even APOE4, which is a higher penetrance, 12 times greater risk, people who live a certain kind of life have much lower risk of developing uh, Alzheimer's. And then the rest of the consortium of genes related to Alzheimer's, which we now know to be now in the 40, 40 or so genes, are, again, lifestyle-related genes that deal with how we get rid of waste. Very common. Uh, genes that have to do with our response, to inflammatory response. If there are bad genes, which means we don't have a good, proper inflammatory response, more likely to get dementias and other diseases. So again, we can see that genes here have to do with lifestyle, a great majority. Mm -hmm. Is there anything someone can do if they have those mutations to presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and are in that sort of, I think you said, 3 to 5% of category? Are they just ultimately, they're destined to get dementia, or can, can they even in that circumstance, modify their lifestyle in a That's way really that... That's a really good question. Very good question. So we did a study, we looked at the data. We didn't do the study. We looked at the data. We need to publish that yes. and with, a, with, a, with an amazing 16-year-old kid that ended up in, in Stanford, brilliant young man. We looked at who has APP. Uh, uh, well, it's on chromosome 21. Amyloid precursor. Yeah, so protein. who has excessive APP are people who have triple chromosome 21, which are Down syndrome, right? So... People with Down syndrome, if they live past the age of 40, 50, it's almost a foregone conclusion they will develop dementia and Alzheimer's. And it's because of excessive APP. And we looked at that data, and what we saw was the main problems that usually Down syndrome individuals have is blood pressure, cholesterol, all of that stuff. When those things were better managed, guess what? They developed the disease later on. So even in the high-penetrant genes like APP in Down syndrome, lifestyle had an influence on pushing the disease back. So that gives you a clue that even in those cases, lifestyle is a big factor. It's almost as if you were given poor tools to maintain a healthier brain. It's like you're not given the right kind of a janitorial system for your brain. You're not given the right kind of a system to get rid of oxidative stress. You're not yeah. given the right kind of system to fight against inflammation. And so if you work hard enough not to create that inflammatory response, not to create it, that oxidative stress, and not to create those glucose metabolism disorders and fat metabolism disorders, you can definitely push the, the disease further. We'll make sure we break down neuro again so people understand yes. what that lifestyle ultimately, what does it look like? What are the behaviors and actions on a daily basis that you can take to sort of swing this in your favor you know, regardless of whatever genes you've you've sort of been dealt. So, Dean, on, on what you just said before, I'm trying to almost just run the math here. On an individual basis, so we have like a 1 in 9, 1 in 10 chance of developing dementia. If you have one copy of APOE4, that's like a 1 in 5. And then if you have two copies, 1 in 2, something Correct. like that. Correct. Um, but you're of the view that we can lower our risk for that risk by up to 80, 90% by getting our lifestyle in order. Correct. Now, 90% is super optimal. 90% is the extrapolation. We always want to make sure that when we speak, we don't just put all of our, all that we say into one clump. There's weight of data, right? This is 
a causal data, which is very rare, strongly correlated data that comes from a meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials, and so on and so forth. When we talk about 90%, it's the extrapolation of taking all the work that we've looked at, you know, nutrition having 50% influence on dementia, exercise 45 and above, I mean, I, just some of the studies. If you put all of this together, we're extrapolating. So take it for that. I, and I, I say that exhaustively so that people say that we're when we speak, we try to be not about just data, but the weight of the data as well. And that's important. But if we believe that if somebody lives perfectly optimal life for a long period of time, especially early on, yes, you can 80%, 90% reduction in risk. But even the data that came to us from subpar studies that, that was published in, uh, we actually saw in the American um, Alzheimer's Association conferences and other places, that even subpar lifestyles reduce your risk by as much as 60%. That's remarkable because none of those studies push the kind of lifestyle we say, we talk about. It. We're talking about, you know, push the exercise to 300 minutes a week. You know, there was, there was a time we talked about 150 minutes. We're talking about 300, close to 300 minutes and push yourself, including weight, weight training. We're talking about as clean a diet as possible, you know, as, as plant centered. If you're not going to be plant only as plant predominant as possible, as clean as possible, and be aware of your vitamin. And just because you're plant aware or, or clean diet, it doesn't mean that you should then ignore other things. Be aware of your omega-3, be aware of your B12, be aware of your vitamin D, be aware of your thyroid status and other things, irrespective of your diet. Be aware of your blood pressure and cholesterol. And if you are aware of all of that and you're eating well and clean and exercising, sleeping well, seven to eight hours of deep restorative sleep, challenging your brain around your purpose, yes, you can push back Alzheimer's and dementia by as much as 80 to 90%. A lot of what you just explained comes down to taking ownership. And and I guess there's, there's a, I don't like using the word balance, but you need to work out a way where you integrate this into your lifestyle where it doesn't feel like a chore. Yes. And it's not stressful and anxiety provoking in and of itself, or you're kind of defeating the point yeah. a little bit. So we might, we might come back to that. I, I'd say change it from lifestyle to life, because if it's not life, it's, it's only sustainable for so long. Our, the power of our habits are immense. I'm a behavioral neurologist. The most difficult thing to change is our habits. Those habits are not just something that was created in our early life. They're created around our psychological flaws. They're sticky. So in order to change behavior, you really have to make it your identity. It has to become part, not as an extra thing. You know, I'm going to be eating more plants today. No, that should be you. That should be your life. I'm going to, you know, do a practice for a marathon this month. I'm a runner. I'm a walker. I'm an exerciser that becomes a more realistic, sustainable thing than a lifestyle. I think one of the challenges here is that you're talking about lifetime exposures to risks, but a lot of people could, when they're thinking about neurodegenerative disease and dementia, you associate it with older people. So you, you have to really engage in delayed gratification to make this work because you're going to be choosing behaviors and actions that are protecting you many, many years down the road. Yeah. 
Absolutely. But there are some short-term benefits that they can actually, when they're aware of, they can see. For example, you sleep, when you live a certain way of life, your sleep will improve, your attention will improve, your mood will improve. We, we don't ever measure those. We don't, we don't make ourselves cognizant of those things. It's time. It's time to kind of create metrics for yeah, your focus. That's a good point. There are some benefits up for grabs. Oh, right, yeah. right away. And I wanted to add that when, when people think of brain health, they, they essentially just dichotomize it into being healthy and unhealthy. If we think of brain health as a spectrum and as a journey, I think it would make more sense. The fact that we have tools only to detect dementia in a population is so wrong. There is a huge sector of population that live with cognitive decline and nobody ever checks that. And that cognitive decline doesn't necessarily start happening in our 60s or 70s. It actually starts happening in our 30s and 40s. And this is not fear mongering, but it's just an indication a little bit. that <laughs> scared me. <laughs> tiny bit but it's it's an indication that you know these individuals that come into our clinic and these are say for example a 35 year old working mom who says you know i'm just forgetful i don't remember things i'm so forgetful of what happens i'm it's actually affecting my life it's not something to be scared of but that's cognitive decline we experience it in our 40s we have people who actually have high blood pressure and there's a term called um, you know, hypertensive encephalopathy, where their blood pressure is so high, they can't really focus on things. They're actually confused. They, have, they lose their train of thought in the middle of a conversation, let alone come up with creative thoughts. That happens in our 50s and our 60s. People who have diabetes, they actually have poor memory as well. Nobody ever checks that. We always talk about, oh, amyloid, uh, brain shrinkage, but that's that's, that's as if, you know, an analogy would be if there's a car accident, and we just saw a car accident on the highway coming here, everybody focuses on the damaged car. There's ambulance, there's police, there's firefighters, all focusing on the damaged car. They don't really look at the road that led to that. They don't actually look at the engine that was, you know, something was wrong with the engine, or they don't really look at so many other factors that resulted into that as well. So... There's a lot of cognitive decline out there in the population. And if people are just aware of that fact, I think it will make them make them take better care of themselves. So that after uh, my previous statement, people don't feel this overwhelming impetus to ab abandon this whole thing because it's all or none. It's not. A morning walk, I mean, the Harvard study, a, a, a brisk morning walk, a brisk walk in general, but, but especially I love, I love brisk morning walk. We'll talk about why. But a brisk walk, with the operative term being brisk, where you get tired. I, I keep coming back to that theme. If you think exercise is not just you know, meandering and walking, you got to get tired. Reduce chance of Alzheimer's by 45%. 45%. Do we have any drug, any of those vitamin concoctions that they sell? None of them have been shown, have shown even 1% of improvement. None of them. Yet a brisk walk, 45%. And, and the, the power of exercise is just immense. And you'll see the difference. You'll see it in, 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 in mood alteration. You'll see it in better sleep. You'll see it in cognition, especially if you become, make yourself aware of it. Let me see if this experiment I'm running where I'm going to walk every morning is going to affect my focus and you'll see the difference. So I want people to kind of shift towards those kind of metrics as well. Also out of Harvard, 
was the Harvard Adult Development Study. I'm not sure if you've seen that. You probably have. You've probably spoken about it where they were tracking. I think they were tracking university students for like 80 years. And the ones that are still alive, they're still tracking today, um, who remarkably are probably in their 90s or so. Um, but one really interesting thing that I, I noticed in their data and, and listening to one of their lead researchers was more than fame or money or any, anything else, relationships Close yes. relationships the were number one fact. great predictor. The number one predictor, in fact, yes. above cholesterol, above blood pressure, above obesity, above everything when it came to total mortality and also neurodegenerative conditions. What is it, do you think, about close relationships that seems to protect the brain? We interviewed the author of the, uh, well, one of the PIs and the author of the book that came out of that um, just recently. And, um, relationships are complex more complex for the wives but but they're complex <laughs> i don't know why you said that yeah no i'm, I'm you know men but uh, relationships are complex they're not just about the relationship it's if it's a good relationship even if it's a bad relationship to be honest it's it's a it's a process where people are interacting talk about cognitive activity and loneliness is one a major determinant of cognitive decline um, hearing loss is a major determinant of cognitive decline in dementia, 9%. So just people interacting with each other, two people constantly interacting with it, even if they're bickering and fighting, it's interacting. That's complexity. That's challenge. They're talking to each other. They're listening. They're adapting. They're learning. They're, they're, you know, if it's on a negative side or on a better, if it's on a positive side. Uh, so all of that matters. As far as taking care of each other, we know that men that are married do a lot better. Some of that data has been overstated, but in general, men that are mar married, do they live longer, they do, they're much healthier because their partner takes care of them and vice versa. Uh, so that level, that level of activity. We know that people, husbands that are unhealthy, our wives, the, the partner is also gonna be unhealthy. But the other side is true as well. The likelihood of two people maintaining health for each other because they have common values, common structures, common behaviors, common habits after years of marriage, and also they have more want to stay healthy is more. So there are lots of roads that come to the same end, which is um, um, uh, health as far as cognition, as far as uh, the, the impetus to be healthier in many, many different ways. And you know what the interesting thing is about this? So they've done studies, the nun study and this particular study as well. It's so fascinating. Cognitive resilience seems to protect you from dementia, even if you have the pathology in your brain. So even with amyloid deposition and all the other pathophysiological changes that we see in dementia, if people have cognitive reserve, which is something that you build throughout your life by being active, by being with you know a lovely partner, having conversations and being busy in life, those connections are protective. It's fascinating. So not everything is vascular ridden, not everything, you know, the outcome is not just based on the vascular risk factors and micronutrients and the supplements and the diet and the exercise. Cognitive resilience is such a huge part of brain health. And another interesting thing is 
you know that they always they always depict that women have a higher risk for dementia compared to men. Twice Why as is high. that? Twice as high. So one of the reasons is because after menopause, the estrogen receptors, they go down, there's not much estrogen in the brain and so on and so forth. So that theory is being studied quite a lot. And there is a huge role that hormones play in maintaining brain health. But another factor that has been highlighted, I mean, this is theoretical right now, is that the, the studies that show us that women are at a higher risk of dementia come from a time when women were not involved in complex and challenging occupations. They were mostly housewives. They were mostly, you know, taking care of the household. So they were not really challenged. And that is changing now that women are more involved in complex and challenging occupations. That is changing. So the data that we have was actually tested on women that probably did not have enough cognitive resilience. I want to make sure that, to, that, that people don't take that as a politically correct statement. No, That's no. not. It's, it's, it's facts. It's data. And it actually is a motivating factor for us yes. to implement or, or you know, make sure that cognitive resilience takes a very huge part and parcel of this whole lifestyle that we're talking about. The one thing that makes neuro or our approach different, yes, nutrition is the same for cardiac, for cancer, for everything else. Exercise, pretty much the same, although we, 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 we talk about leg strength and it's unique effect on brain health, um, sleep. And, but cognitive reserve is something that, that is very unique and it's critical. And, and people who have been very cognitively active and then they retire and they don't do as much, they have the steepest decline. Mm-hmm. So that's an important factor to take into all this. Challenge your brain. Challenging your brain creates that infrastructure I was talking about before, those, those uh, pillars that create the protection later on. Mm. And we, we have a lot of challenge when we're uh, a young child or we're a teenager there's so many challenges during that period where our brain is rapidly developing but then we become adults and we often just do the same thing over and over repetition yes yes there's a there's a term uh, there's a phrase um idea density my favorite term yeah dean always says if we have a band we'll call it idea density (laughs) right so we want high idea density as opposed to calorie density exactly yes <laughs> exactly yes. yes yeah so your idea density is um directly correlated with cognitive longevity People is that something have... you can measure you can yeah. of course of course yeah. uh, but by the way it's not iq it's not it's the uh, so the nun study showed that people there were nuns that were that had a higher cognitive uh, capacity and 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 had, were protected in spite of uh of pathology had much higher idea density, more complex vocabulary, more complex language, the more complex layers of communication. Those are all idea densities uh, terms. So how would we go and test that if someone's listening and thinking, I'd love to understand where, where my idea density is at? There, there are measurements that actually can quantify that. The, the simple one is vocabulary. How, how expansive is your vocabulary? That's one thing. The other thing is how expansive is your knowledge of history and philosophy and that, you know, these kind of things, if that matters. But idea density, I think, um, it goes beyond those, those measurable things. For example, somebody who's into music, let's say, and that's, not an, that's a form of idea, right? But they're not just doing the same thing again, like me who plays the same four chords terribly over and over again and I can't get, get out of it. But, but they're on the creative side and they're, you know, we, we listen to um, uh, the jazz musician, uh, bassist, um, Stanley Clark. Stanley Clark. Oh, man. oh my amazing. goodness. Oh. Stanley Clark Talk is about the goat. 
so he is creating on the go continuously. That's a person who's challenging the brain around that kind of idea. It's about, so we did the meta-analysis in 2008, it was published in 2019, I think, uh, that looked at cognition or cognitive activities in MCI patients. Very good mild paper, mild cognitive impairment patients, incredible. And out of that came, if you have weakness, work around your weakness. I run, this is not what you usually say in other realms, work around your strength. No, with cognition, if you find the weakness, strengthen that. If it's memory, strengthen it. If it's focus, strengthen that, and so on and so forth. The other things we found as a paraphenomenon was uh, purpose, complexity, and, 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 and purpose and complexity and challenge are three factors. Purpose means activities that are serving your purpose, activities that are, that are, that are meaningful to you. So complexity means if it's Sudoku, it's fine, but if it's real life activities like a podcast, I mean, the amount of brain work you put into organizing this, yeah. I mean, I hope so. I, I know so. I mean, it's <laughs> immense. It's immense. So that's complexity as opposed to playing Sudoku. Um, and then challenges keep pushing yourself because if it becomes, you said it earlier, people to get in their thirties and they, they do the same thing over and over again. But even in this, if you're doing the same thing over again, it becomes a checklist then it's no longer challenging. It's not pushing the brain to make the connections. If people just build their cognitive life around those factors, purpose, complexity, and challenge, they'll create incredible amount of reserve. It also keeps life interesting. It does. It to, does. To constantly find your weak points and keep challenging yourself. One of my challenges other than this podcast um, that I've been embarking on lately is paddle or padel, which is like pickleball. Oh. Have you seen that game? No. no. So it's very big in Europe. It's actually, they've just opened... Uh, there's one court down near you guys. Oh, and wow. there's one court in Santa Monica. I have no affiliation with these guys. They're they're massive across Europe and uh, in parts of Asia and in Australia, and it's kind of a hybrid between squash and uh, tennis. Oh, so I think a small I've, court yeah. where you can hit off the back wall. Oh. Yes, um, yes. It's a great game because people of all ages can play this. You don't have to be a skilled, experienced tennis player. In fact, in many ways, it probably helps if you're not. Yeah. You don't bring the same sort of habits, I guess, to, to the game because it's very different, but it's highly strategic. So there's there's a lot of thinking involved and, um, yeah, I've Amazing. been finding that I love that. I yes, that so yes, much. yes. I, I was a tennis player, so I'll definitely uh, try that out. Yeah. Maybe I can beat you finally. You will definitely <laughs> do that. I want to come back to a APOE 4 yes. and amyloid plaque and the kind of... Uh, pathology of Alzheimer's dementia because I know that's very topical. It's been controversial recently. Um, but before I do, one thing that we were just speaking there about relationships that I came to mind was I think often when people hear that, some people who are, say, single or maybe yeah maybe they are they're divorced they're in their forties or fifties they they're left sort of thinking wow I'm I'm at increased risk of of dementia here my question to you is do you think and i guess i'm of the view that their being single or being divorced is not necessarily synonymous with loneliness and so you can be single and absolutely thriving and still finding the challenges and building social connections and um 
I guess we probably shouldn't conflate being single with with loneliness, and some people probably do really well with solitude. Mm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's a very good. That's a very good point. Yeah, because there are some people who are introverts. You know, and we get asked about this question. Like, I don't really enjoy being in in circles of people and having conversations. Can I still have a healthier brain? And the answer is absolutely. Um, I think the key thing to understand is how much do you challenge yourself? That challenge yeah. is easy on a day-to-day -day basis if you're speaking with someone because you take care of so many variables, you know, being respectful, knowing what the person is interested in, not being mean yeah. and selfish. All of that takes a lot of hard I don't work. I she looked you know? at me there, but... but <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, so all of those things are very important and it's easy, uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis because yeah. we're human beings and it just comes naturally. But if you can replace that with a task that requires or, or kind of yeah. checks off those elements focus attention being on your feet making sure that you are always thinking and you're being challenged on a regular basis obviously i think i think people do very very well i fully agree yeah okay that'll be good news for, yes, for many people, yes sure. so back to apoe4 you mentioned before it's this um, protein that helps carry lipids fats and cholesterol in the brain um, similar to apoe through the body if so some people can have one copy or two copies of that. What is it about APOE4 that's, is it related to amyloid plaque? And if someone doesn't have APOE4, they just have another form of, of APOE transporting fats that's a bit more benign? So, so that's what makes uh, not just Alzheimer's, but all disease, but especially disease of the brain interesting because it's almost like five-dimensional chess. It's, they're all connected. So I'll, let me give you an example. So APOE2 is protective. It, it does its job of um, transporting lipids efficiently to the right place, not get overwhelmed, not create secondary inflammation. Inflammation is always involved in all APOE2 of this. APOE2 being, so if you, if you have two copies of APOE4, you don't have APOE2. Correct. These are sort of alternative they are. They are. Yeah, they're exclusionary. So, uh, if you have, uh, so if you have two APOE2s, you're very protected. The, the data shows. And, and that's because of its efficiency, not just because of its lipid transport, inflammation, all of that. They're all, all these systems are involved through inflammation, glucose dysregulation, lipid dysregulation, which is APOE4, oxidation, they're connected. And not just in Alzheimer's, but also in, for example, um, we think that ALS and frontotemporal lobe dementia, there's a lot of oxidative damage that's involved in, 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 in genetics around that. But they're not exclusive of each other. It depends on where in that journey each of them come in, right? So with APOE4, lipid transport port is bad. It accumulates. It, it causes claw, um, uh, uh, vascular damage. It cause, uh, causes damage to the endothelial lining. It causes damage to the blood-brain barrier, which is incredibly important, which is supposed to be non-porous and creates this environment, enclosed environment for the brain and spinal cord where nothing can come in or very little can come come in but it becomes more porous because of the fact that apoe4 is over time causing improper lipid deposition lipid processing in secondary inflammation and then after that comes the cellular uh, inflammatory products that then cause secondary damage then what happens is as we get older amyloid amyloid creation is part of our body the APP is a normal transmembrane protein. It gets cut in the wrong place 
with uh, beta secretase and gamma secretase, which causes amyloid deposition. So, so transmembrane protein, meaning this protein is like inside the cell, the inside neuron? The, uh, no, uh, it goes from inside the cell, through the membrane, and so outside. outside. And then so it, it gets, gets cleaved. It's cleaved and usually gets cleaved. It's, if it's by alpha, it, it's in the right place and it, it's, it's fine. But if it gets miscleaved, it creates these clumping. Now, the clumping in itself happens anyway with aging and accumulates. We know that a lot of people will have amyloid and they're normal. But what happens is we believe and, 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 and is that there's a, if there's inflammation, this clumping becomes more sticky. This is the amyloid hypothesis. Amyloid, yes, uh, amyloid hypothesis. It becomes more sticky. It's no longer soluble. It becomes insoluble. It becomes bound. And then it, becomes, it brings in cellular immunity. And then the damage process starts. And here's the other thing. There's an infectious kind of phenomenon going on. This clumpy amyloid, which also affects the tau and vice versa. I'll talk about the tau in a second, another abnormal protein in Alzheimer's. Then actually seeds other amyloid to become from insoluble to soluble. So they start affecting other amyloid and it becomes a process that spreads. And so if someone's trying to visualize this, right? yes. so I think of cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis, probably because I spend more time reading about it and yes. thinking about it. And so I can picture that fatty plaque on, on the inside of the artery and the downstream repercussions of that are lack of oxygen to important tissues, brain or to the heart. Here, if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, and I'm admittedly not very well read in this at all, but I'm really interested in this under, yes. underlying like cascade of events that occur yes. that precede Alzheimer's. So outside of the cell, there's this amyloid, um, a, a range of different factors like inflammation that can cause clumping together. Correct. Then amyloid plaques is extracellular. It affects communication between neurons it affects communication between neurons and these clumps actually then so there's amyloid liquid amyloid in the in the milieu of the brain right in the in the, the outside of a cell the soluble amyloid is not as problematic but it clumps then becomes a problem we think that the clumping happens more with inflammation we think the clumping happens more with glucose dysregulation insulin resistance and other things and multiple other factors and that's what pro propagates this process from being a normal part of life, aging, to one of pathology. And, 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 and then also it affects cell intercellularly, which is the tau protein. I'll get to that in a second. But this clumping then actually seeds other soluble amyloids to clump together, clump together. Imagine this, these clumps just growing initially in the temporal lobe, but then to the parietal lobe, and then throughout the cell. In fact, if you look at the pathology studies by Brock and Brock, these are another husband and wife pathologist, very famous in neuro neuroscience, they looked at how these diseases actually grew. It was almost like infectious. In fact, a lot of people thought it was infectious because it, it was started at the path of smell, the, the, the olfactory, right? It connects to the temporal lobe, and then it starts in the temporal lobe, the amyloid buildup, and the clumping, and the cell death, and then it grows to the parietal lobe, it's almost like a spread, and then it spreads to the whole brain. But it's not an infectious process. We think it's the seeding that this amyloid. So what's the, the just to backtrack a little bit. Yes, right? it's a little complicated. So, yeah. so if I'm thinking again about atherosclerosis, and 
you know, I think there's pretty much consensus that ground zero is an elevation in these ApoB containing lipoproteins, LDLs being the main one. Yes. And that sort of is enough. That's a necessary component for this disease to occur. Correct. And you can throw petrol on the flame with diabetes yes. or high blood pressure or smoking. All of these things can exacerbate the risk. But a, a critical component to the cascade is elevation of ApoB. That makes cardiovascular disease in many ways easy to treat because you can then design therapeutics and lifestyle things that go direct to the start of the the cascade you can address the other things as well to try and bring the total risk down but it helps knowing what is ground zero yes in what you just described is it the cleaving of that that amyloid precursor protein is it is it incorrectly being cleaved? Is that the initial problem, or is that normal that cleaving? So the scientific world that's creating all these antibodies to treat amyloid are betting on that hypothesis that the beginning or the nidus is that cleaving or miscleaving. We think the data doesn't show that. We think that it's an important. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think it, amyloid is a very important part, but we think it's downstream. Upstream is vascular. Upstream, it's the cholesterol. Upstream is the diabetes, the untreated. Upstream, it's the um, blood pressure. All this damage that pushes the, the, a normal process of aging, which is just amyloid accumulation anyway, into something pathologic. And we think that the reason that we're not getting a cure, or even these, the, the drugs, that, that the latest one that showed 30-something percent uh, slowing. Is that Eli Lilly's? Eli Lilly's drug, yeah. Right. It, it, it's not a cure. It just slows the process. It's because you're just taking just part of the picture, which is the amyloid cascade, and not taking into account all the upstream pathologies. So that beforehand. drug was targeting amyloid and was able to reduce yes. amyloid. Yes. And significantly they, and they slowed progression by 35 percent. so from right. a individual's point of view let's pretend someone with alzheimer's dementia takes that drug gets that effect from a, a sort of behavior point of view would would they have restoration of memories that they've lost no no so that's that's a very good point to raise so in in the normal um, evolution of the disease, you tend to see decline in cognition year after year after year. It's a progressive disease. At a certain rate. At a certain rate, yes. And after giving individuals this infusion of monoclonal antibodies, 50% of them did not have progression of their disease, close to 50%. I think it was 47%. So that's that was significant. But what it does, that those medications, whether it's the donanumab or the one previous to that, which is lacanumab and all these MABs, monoclonal antibodies, what they do is they get rid of those clumps of amyloid, the end byproducts that are toxic in the extracellular space. Mm. I wish yes. they came up with easier names. For <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're very long. And yeah. I, yeah. Okay. It's difficult to pronounce. So walk walk us through the controversy then. The the amyloid plaque sort of controversy in science, I think it was 12 months ago, uh, and I believe you you w- were a mentor to kind of a central figure in this who, who sort of unearthed um, what became described as fraudulent science. Yeah. And there was a lot of different takes in the media and on social media and, and many people were 
we're using that story as a way of saying, look, the whole amyloid hypothesis has been debunked. It's not worth focusing on amyloid at all, which I guess is uh, conflicting with even just the evidence that you just presented then with that drug. Like that still seems beneficial to someone if you can delay their progression. It's not a cure and it's probably not what we're all hoping for. Absolutely. But targeting amyloid in that circumstance seems to be doing something. So walk us through what this whole controversy was a result of and what I guess your perspective is. Absolutely. Um, so generally speaking in science, um, you know, um, science is fraught with mistakes and errors and learning from those errors and moving on. In this particular situation, what happened was back in 2006, there was a, a research article that was published in a very reputable journal by a scientist, Lesnar. And um, essentially what had happened was he made a mistake as far as his presentation of the images that depicted amyloid deposition in the brain. That's the short of it. Basically, the images that he showed in the paper and the data that he presented in the paper were flawed. He basically, if I had to simplify it, it almost kind of copy-pasted some of the imaging and he produced it as evidence for amyloid being the reason why people tend to have Alzheimer's disease. Um, Before that, there had been a lot of research done. The amyloid hypothesis was something that was replicable, was validated, and was seen in multiple different animal and human models. After that as well, there were a lot of imaging studies, pathology studies that did confirm the fact that amyloid was a part of Alzheimer's disease and its evolution, right? So now what happened was, There was a scientist in Vanderbilt University, Dr. Matthew Schrag, who was um, that particular story in itself. He was actually asked by a few people to look into it. He was actually asked by some people to look into the data. So he went back and he collected the raw data and the raw supplemental files to find out how we came up with this hypothesis. And he found some some issues with that. He did actually find out that the data wasn't presented properly. And so he raised a flag and he did an interview and he said, this theory is based on flawed models. That particular theory was based on flawed models, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all our understanding of amyloid disease, uh, amyloid and Alzheimer's disease is flawed. We still have enough data to show that amyloid is important. The way it was propagated in the media, as it always is, was just, oh my gosh, everything we know about Alzheimer's disease has been garbage. This whole amyloid theory is useless. We've spent billions of dollars on nothing, and that wasn't true. So that wasn't necessarily Matthew Shrug's take. He just put forward what he found, and then other people interpreted it that way. Absolutely. He specifically pointed that 2006 paper, which was a very important, highly cited paper, monumental paper, highly cited paper, and said the imaging that was depicted in this paper was based on flawed models, and this needs to be corrected. Was it flawed and and just a simple oversight, or do you think it was purposeful? And are there are there kind of negative repercussions of that in that a lot of funding and research may have gone into something that was was not a path that would have otherwise been followed? 
It definitely affected science. I mean, it's all about, you know, in science, it's not absolute. It's not binary. It's a spectrum, right? So whoever, I always say, it's not about truth. It's the weight of the truth. If you overweight a truth, it's a fallacy. If you underweight it, underweight a truth, it's a fallacy. So this data actually mis pushed the data, science a little too much towards amyloid. Not that it doesn't, doesn't deserve attention, not that research shouldn't be done on it, but it shouldn't be an end-all, be-all, which is, that's what happened after this pretty much. Yeah. I think it had already started many, many years ago um, where drug after drug being failed, you know, people looking yeah. at specific amyloid models and not getting anywhere had started. I think Dean and I were like the, the you know, the main people in the field of neurology who kind of just raised that question like, hey, maybe it's time we stop looking only at amyloid hypothesis and maybe look at everything else. But there's a lot of research that now shows the uh, the overlap between vascular, you know, disorders or uh, disorders of vascular, neurovascular unit and the development of Alzheimer's disease. So so that's what it actually propelled. It may, uh, Whether this came from nefarious intent, we don't know. Whether this came from, you know, the, the scientists wanting to get some sort of fame out of this, we don't know. And I don't want to imply anything because I don't know the details very well. Right. That would be unfair. It right. would probably need to be fully investigated. Yeah. To kind it is still of under investigation. Yes. Determine that. I did find it interesting that uh, I believe Matthew Schrag was initially engaged. A lawyer called him and it was it was a lawyer that had been engaged from a couple of gentlemen who... Uh, actually were shorting a pharmaceutical stock, stock that was yes. bringing out a drug that um, was being sort of marketed as a drug that could cure Alzheimer's. And these guys shorted that stock because they believed that the science didn't support it and that that drug was going to fail. Yeah. 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 Matthew uh, was in Loma Linda, actually, Dean. Um, I was one of his mentors yeah. and uh, he, he's a brilliant, he's brilliant, a brilliant person. Man. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's a brilliant man. And I know that he probably just looked into it to clarify things and uh, yeah, something else came out of it. So with amyloid plaque and drugs targeting amyloid plaque and i think that quote of 99 point whatever percent of drug trials targeting it have failed one thing that i've kind of been thinking about here is whether that means targeting amyloid has limited utility or let's say we come back to atherosclerosis right we know that early intervention is really critical and so if you give someone a statin and they're 60 years old and they've had decades and decades of exposure yes you can you can get an effect but it's not as great as people who have low cholesterol genetically from mendelian studies that we see like the magnitude of risk reduction is far superior are, are is the field looking at you know whether it's in susceptible people like those with apoe4 one copy or two or others with the presenellin genes looking at what about targeting amyloid earlier in life well before someone actually has dementia and um you know i guess coming back to atherosclerosis there's a lot of talk of cholesterol years which is very similar to sort of cigarette pack years your total cholesterol exposure over over a number of years is determining your total risk of having a heart attack is it possible that it's a similar sort of circumstance here it is, it is. And, and much of the research that's going after uh, early detection of, of disease process is with this in mind, 
which is the earlier you detect the beginnings of a pathology, the more likely that you will affect its outcome. We really think that this there's a point of no return. There's a point where the damage is so much and this this the seeding of amyloid is so rapid that pulling it back is going to be difficult. You can slow it down, but pulling it back is going to be difficult. Um, and and a lot of the studies that, that are being done now as far as biomarkers are focused at this or imaging markers are focused at this. Some of the, we already have some of the biomarkers, which is we look at cerebrospinal fluid. We could, we look at How the do ratio. How sample that? Uh, from the lower spine at, at L4, we put a needle in uh, and, and draw fluid. And it's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, and, and then we send it out and we look for amyloid and tau ratio. Initially, they're both high, but later what happens is amyloid goes down and tau goes up. And that, that ratio tells us that uh, there's, this is m most likely Alzheimer's. That, that ratio is, is very, very uh, diagnostic. Is that, predictive? is that predictive in that, let's say, uh, well, let's, let's take Limitless, for example, Chris Hemsworth's story. That was you know, mainstream news across the world. Two copies of APOE4. Um, is this something, are there biomarkers that someone in that circumstance could look at that are, go a bit deeper than blood pressure and cholesterol and HbA1c? You mentioned all of that stuff before, which is, of course, critical in the risk calculation. But is there any more specific biomarkers early in life someone can do if they want to go that step further? Uh, so the ones I was talking about, amyloid and tau, you can actually tell 10 years before there's a pattern coming towards. I mean, it's not very directly predictive, but it's, it's, it gives you a picture of risk. The others that we're looking at, we don't have them now, a lot of people are saying they do, but they, we don't, is what's called exosomes. That would be more useful because people are not willing to do lumbar punctures every few years or every year. You know, that's, that's an, an invasive. But if, what if you can draw from the blood or retina, and I'll tell you about the retina, which we were involved in, but look at, looking at the blood and from that being having biomarkers that are predictive. So exosomes are these cl little clumps of um, um, my cells or around uh, byproducts of cells that, that are extruded out of the uh, central nervous system and you can detect them in the blood. They're in small numbers, but you can detect them. And in, in the past, we thought that they were just garbage. You know, the cell is throwing out that it's garbage. But no, there are different exosomes. And some of them actually give you a good picture of the pathologies of Alzheimer's, be it amyloid and tau. And, and so now we're looking at those and we're becoming better and better and better at using that as a predictor of dementia. And earlier, that's, the, that's one way. The other way is retina, looking at the retina, because retina, human retina, is a, um, a continuation of the central nervous system. So we, when we were at Cedar sinai we have these tools to look at the retina whether it's vascular damage in the retina or amyloid deposition in the retina or patterns of change in the retinal structure, that is being used to study the you know, downstream dementia risk. So that's another way to look at it. And then there are imaging modalities such as um, uh, PET scan, uh, MRI techniques, fMRI, but especially PET scans are very good because with PET scans, you, what you do is you put a ligand that connects to amyloid, and then you can see it in the brain. Oh, look, there's this much amyloid in the brain. Or now we have tau ligand, which is much more predictive. And so you can look at the tau deposition in the brain and say, oh, wait a second, this person doesn't have any dementia, but the pattern looks suspicious. 
So those are other tools that we have, and we're getting better and better at using those to detect earlier and earlier. And here's the last one. We now know that microvascular disease, which we didn't use to follow in the brain, actually happens earlier than even amyloid deposition. And as you were saying, what's the seed? Well, maybe it is microvascular disease. So you disease. think that could lead to the amyloid part? Correct. Absolutely. So that's another thing that we are looking at with this newer tools. Now we, the MRIs we use in the United States, 1.5 Tesla, but with higher powered MRIs, you can look at microvascular disease years before any pathology. Is that related to the blood-brain barrier? Same it, conversation. It is. Definitely it is. Definitely. Mm. Absolutely. What do you think, if you were to kind of hypothesize now, would be the main things that would be driving microvascular damage? What drives the microvascular damage? Cholesterol, LDL, you know, um, um, saturated fat, uh, diabetes, high oh, blood so pressure. So here we're talking about things peripheral. Peripheral. To the brain. Peripheral to the brain. We think that those are the easy low-hanging fruit, but also true drivers of majority of dementias, but especially Alzheimer's dementia and vascular dementia. Those are the main drivers. And those are simple ones. Maybe it would be worth kind of just high level describing what the blood-brain barrier is and why microvasculature is important, how, how this kind of fits into this puzzle. Yeah, so the blood-brain barrier is a system. It's uh, essentially a barrier and a wall between the brain and the circulatory system. And this wall is made of endothelial cells. They're very tiny cells with very, very tight junctions, which means that uh, they really don't have any gap to allow things from your circulation, from your blood to go into the brain. And they have specific kind of receptors or little gates that allow things like glucose and fat and some other very tiny molecules to pass through uh, the gate. It's like living in a very high security area where everything is checked and only specific people are allowed to go in. That's how I would actually analogize the, the blood-brain barrier. And it is essentially a protective mechanism for the brain to stay in that little compartment and not be affected by things. One of the reasons why a lot of medications have failed in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease is because of an intact blood-brain barrier. It doesn't allow a lot of drugs and molecules to go in there. It actually doesn't even allow saturated fats as much as we hear people say that saturated fat is important for brain health. It, it doesn't, doesn't allow through. cholesterol. It does, just doesn't get through. It doesn't have the gates or the mechanisms for it. And so how, how is this endothelium connected to our circulatory system? It's essentially the tiny little capillaries of people, you know, for the audience, if you can imagine the heart, the heart gives out this big major artery called the aorta. And then this aorta gets dissected and divided into different kind of arteries. Then you have the internal carotid artery and the external carotid arteries, and they go and branch out into your brain into specific kind of arteries going into your frontal lobe, temporal lobe, and parietal lobe. And then they keep on branching and branching and branching into tiny, tiny little capillaries and arteries. And when you measure that, you have about 400 miles of these tiny little capillaries in one brain, in one human brain. And so imagine the branching and the thinning out. And the reason why it had to be that way is because the brain is a very active organ and it needs nutrients and oxygen at all times. So the blood-brain barrier is that final, final place where there is exchange of material from our blood into the brain. How does it get damaged? It gets damaged with things that damage our 
vasculature. You know, as we age, atherosclerotic changes, as we live, uh, the uncontrolled vascular risk factors like insulin resistance and diabetes and high blood pressure, they all cause wear and tear damage into these arteries. And if we don't take care of these risk factors, they will continuously damage the endothelial cells. And over time, the blood-brain barrier will weaken and it becomes um, essentially, uh, you know, porous. And um, the, the studies that have shown us that there is accumulation of say, for example, some microbes, some, uh, you know, some bacteria or some, um, you know, fungal material or some heavy metals in the brain. It didn't happen because those heavy metals were, say, for example, or that, that bacterial or whatever uh, microbes are seen in the brain. It was not that that caused the Alzheimer's disease. It's basically, it could potentially be because of the porous blood-brain barrier that allowed for these compounds to deposit in the brain at the very end. Um, so taking care of that incredible tight junction So you think that important. those those very, very small blood vessels and the blood-brain barrier could be at the root of a lot of oh, these uh, neurodegenerative pathologies? I mean, I'll give you an example. So we live in, we work in Loma Linda, um, less now, but but we worked in Loma Linda, thousands of patients. Um, the ones that were, and, and it's a particular type of population, right? It's Seventh-day Adventists. About a third of them are vegetarians. Majority of them are healthy living very healthy that's why they live 12 years 10 to 12 years longer and healthier than everybody else just i want people to just think about that not 12 days not 12 weeks not 12 months 12 years healthier much less risk of cancer much less risk of diabetes and so on and so forth in my clinic where a third was supposed to be vegetarian because a third of that population is vegetarian out of out of 3000 people only 19 were vegetarian, not 19%, 19. I know it's an observational data set, but it's still a massive observational data set. And we look at a lot of MRIs, lots. And clean, serene brains well into their 70s, 80s, and beyond. We worked in a free clinic or in a, um, a low-income clinic one day a week, and people would come for headache and so on and so forth, so we would do imaging. Every 40-year-old, had microvascular disease in their brain. Now that doesn't get recorded as a in, the, in their charts because it's there's no charge associated with it. In the United States, there's ICD-10. There's no charge associated with microvascular disease of the brain. Not minor, my, you know, unless it becomes major. But almost every single patient had microvascular disease. Where in this population, even their 60s and 70s, much less so. And when you talk to neuroimaging scientists. By the time you actually see that white matter change, the damage to the capillaries, there's a whole cascade of inflammatory changes that have been going on for, for, for at least time. a decade. And you actually, we don't have the tools to detect small capillary damage. Yeah, I was thinking it would be interesting to be able to run some test and say, hey, you, you're, you're showing signs of early Alzheimer's. There's some blood-brain barrier potential damage happening here and we're getting there and and, and in fact one of the neurosurgeons we were working with and and cedars um, dr gonzalez looking at vgef and other markers of vascular damage in the brain we're there and and that's going to help the younger people because if they know that they're having and you can measure the change i'm having this much damage now to the vasculature and i've changed my life now it's less that's going to be an amazing marker and we're there there will be imaging tools Right now, the imaging tools, we have the MRI, we have 
isn't sensitive enough to look at microvasculature in living beings. They've looked at post-mortem, because post-mortem you can even put people into the seven Tesla machines and 11 Tesla machines, which are living person, you don't want to do that. But, 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 but then when, once we get to the point where we can actually look at the microvascular disease early on, and then the person changes their lifestyle, then you can see you know, improvement. We're there, we're around the corner. A lot of people are jumping ahead of the, you know, because they're, they're claiming that they have it. They don't. And that's going to be exciting. Right. But it, and in the meantime, though, so people realize there are things that they can keep an eye on. It's looking at your LDL level or ApoB, HbA1c, fasting blood glucose, blood pressure. Um, what's your cardiorespiratory fitness like? Are you doing that aerobic exercise? And... Um, some at a high intensity, a lot at moderate, doing strength training, all of these things are going to dramatically lower the risk of that, that damage to those micro. Here's TikTok presentation for you. Five things that's going to, no, I'm just kidding. Five things that are going to, so <laughs> be your own, check a blood pressure every morning. You know, when the cortisol jumps up, that's when people have most heart attack. So blood pressure, be on top of your LDL. To be less than 70, Aisha would push you less than 50. Uh, so that's that's so another one. LDL, LDL, oh, LDL, no, LDL, <laughs> no. <laughs> Hemoglobin A1C and insulin resistance. Watch that. Those are B12, not just normal, but higher normal. Omega-3, vitamin D. That's it. Those just by that. Uh, don't smoke. Don't drink. Or if you're going to drink, you know, like I shouldn't, we hold a glass here and there and, you know, sip, but don't make it a part of your life. Don't buy into the French hypothesis that one wine a day is going to save you. None of that. But at least if you do these seven or eight things, you just there, you've significantly reduced your risk of cognitive decline. But more importantly, the brain is incredibly resilient. Do more, two more things to now build the brain. The two other things, exercise actually grows the brain grows the brain study after study shows it grows hippocampus it grows the frontal lobe exercise intensively and it also it also improves vascular risk factor yes. uh, you know uh, factors like high ldl like glucose metabolism is improved and blood pressure is 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 fixed i know Mode, that it doesn't sound anxiety very... depression best treatments right. yeah yeah sorry we are going to wrap that up into a TikTok for sure, and maybe <laughs> maybe even a PDF of, of the, yeah, the top ten. I know too long for a TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> but the, the last one is build a life where you're pushing yourself intensely around your purpose or purposes. You know, mine is uh, I'm I'm I, now I'm in a different phase of life where we're bu building this company around uh, technology and AI and brain development and even identifying diseases. So that's a challenge. It's a, it's a thing that I've, you know, I've done MD, PhD, all, this is a different kind of animal altogether. It's, it's complicated. Guitar, which I'll never get good at, but it's okay. And, and sports, you know, so I'm pushing that. Find three, four purposes that really have meaning for you and push yourself to learn and be better at it all day in and day out. These kind of, these eight things profoundly will create protection for your brain. Mm. Kind of stack them on top of each other. Stack them on top, yeah. Uh, the other biomarker that a lot of people have asked me about, I did a, a story post and sort of got some community engagement before this episode, was homocysteine. Whether that is a biomarker that helps determine one's risk of, of neurodegenerative disease. Is that something that you would keep an eye on? 
it's a very soft biomarker. It's a, a, it can be uh, considered inflammatory. It can be considered a sign of uh, B vitamins. It can be a sign of, although they've found studies where it's been correlated with dis outcome diseases, but I think it's a soft biomarker. We it's, will yeah, it's almost an intermediate marker. Yes. You know, it's an intermediary of, say, for example, certain B vitamin deficiencies. It's an intermediary of lack of exercise and lack of physical activity, an intermediary of abnormal vascular risk factors resulting from high blood pressure and vascular damage or capillary damage. So, you know, it's like that in-between person that could be as a result of so many different things. Yeah, it's important, but do we need to focus on that? No, we probably need to focus on things that are upstream that resulted in the homocysteine uh, abnormality. So I know that your perspective is we can do a lot with our lifestyle to lower our risk of Alzheimer's dementia, but many of these neurodegenerative diseases, um, and you're not of the view that there's really a magic pill as such, but where do you see us getting to? Like, Do you see in the next 5, 10, 15 years if someone has mild cognitive impairment or they have Alzheimer's? I'm sure there's people listening right now or family members that are going through this who are thinking, is there, are we going to be able to do more than just slow the progression? Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I'm, I'm big about not, not overstating the facts but I'm incredibly optimistic, whether it's Huntington's disease. It's one gene locus on chromosome 44, uh, four, chromosome 4. Which makes it easier in easier. some ways. Yeah, CRISPR, eliminate, and imagine... Unpack CRISPR for some people that maybe at a high level, some people have not heard of that. So it's actually different. Now it's different evolutions of CRISPR, but it's basically a genetic um, um, uh, tool that actually cuts a part of the gene and then you can insert another gene segment in, in front of that. And, and, and that... And now we have gotten to a different generation of CRISPR where it's much more accurate, it's much cleaner, and we're going to get better and better at this, which means a lot of diseases. So it's not just Huntington's disease, APOE4. APOE4, is, it's not like APOE4 was not useful. It was a useful genetic byproduct of evolution. It was useful in a certain time of history where we're living from moment to moment where our worry was not chronic inflammation because we saw a bad TV show, but... but you know, to tiger. So in that realm, APOE4 was, was useful. Or even um, uh, sickle cell. Sickle cell was incredibly useful, and that's why it, it, it persisted, because it's protected against um, uh, malaria. And, but now it's, we're, we're past that, and we can actually eliminate Some genes. of these genetic mutations that were protective in the short term are, work the opposite way when it comes to longevity. It comes back, back to the same argument with paleo and, and all these people, which is evolution didn't care about you living past age 30. So please don't bring that up again. All it cared about was you living to 30 to 20 or 30 if, and getting a mate, reproducing, and then, in fact, dying. For you to bring up paleo science to me means that you don't know the purpose of evolution and, and what paleo you know, means in that context. So the, uh, most of what comes to us, a lot of what comes to us, most is an overgeneralization, is short-term survival value, but not long-term thriving value. That's the difference. The other area I've seen CRISPR being spoken about, and I think there's a trial set up now, is for people with a particular a gene mutation to PCSK9, which results in high LDL levels. Yes. And they're 
they're looking at, I think they've had some studies, preclinical studies, and now they're doing it in humans and seeing does this CRISPR technology lead to lower LDL levels and then does that have an effect on events, which we know based on a lot of research it will. Yeah. The other area that the near future, which is large data analysis and AI and machine learning, all this will bring to us, which is amazing. As you can see, I mean, from this talk, you can see we're, we're saying that it's not just amyloid, but it's also amyloid. It's not just cholesterol, but it's definitely a cholesterol. It's not just blood pressure, but it's definitely blood pressure, which means, and for every individual, that that combination of things varies. For somebody, the cholesterol story is a lot more pertinent because of their APOE status, because of their genetics, their liver, uh, the cytochrome P450 of their liver, how it processes things and all of this stuff. So we'll get to a point where we can do immediate genetic analysis of person and map it out as far as the complexity of how all of these work together when it comes to heart disease, cancer, brain diseases. And to us, it seems like extremely complicated, but no, when it comes to AI, when it comes to large data analysis and the tools for large data analysis, machine learning, that's going to be very simple. So within the next, I would say 10 years, we can do that level of personalized analysis and programming for every single person. Yeah. Reason to be optimistic. Reason to try and stay alive for another 10 years to make the most of that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Huntington's. We haven't spoken much about that at all in, in previous episodes. It's, it's fairly rare. What Do you know roughly what the incidence of that is? About one in 100,000, if not less. And, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a devastating disease. Um, usually, it's uh, when you see it in families, although it can happen spontaneously, as most genetics, but, but when it happens in families, when a father has it, then it's a dominant uh, trait. So you can, you can tell that how, a certain percentage of children will have it. And then you do genetic analysis, and that's pretty sad. When you know that the child has the gene, up to now, we can't do anything about it. So is this one a scenario where uh, if your parent had it, it would be worth testing before you have kids? 100% oh, yeah. for multiple yeah. reasons. One is, uh, I'm hoping that's going to change very soon, but up to now, if, if your parent had it, and if you have it, then do you want to bring children with that risk? Yeah, they usually bring geneticists in the conversation yes. right away for people to decide whether they want to bring offsprings into this world. But it's that, that might change based on this gene therapy conversation, yes. or yes. It, might, yeah. it might make that decision you know, redundant. Uh, redundant, Agreed. it's yes. gonna be a moot point, mm. absolutely. It, it, it's gonna be the, the most remarkable thing to see. How does Huntington's affect someone? The first signs are psychological. Um, uh, depression, uh, psychosis, uh, behavior disorders, things of that nature. Have the, you seen someone I've, with Huntington's? Yeah, yeah, several, yeah. several, yeah. As a matter of fact, a lot of Huntington's patients, they tend to be misdiagnosed as psychiatric cases and they end up being treated for psychosis and depression and other psychological problems for years, yeah. uh, or at least a couple of years before they start having neurological um, dysfunctions, which is essentially movement disorders, inability to speak, yeah. either slowing of movements or, you know, um, there, there's basically... Uh, would be called dystonia which is abnormal movements of the arms and the legs loss of speech um and it's just a devastating thing to see it kind of change so quickly and what's the average age where symptoms in the 30s yeah in the 30s, 30s yes early and then when you look at the mri 
it's almost every time when we see an MRI, I, I, we have to pull all the residents and students to come and see it's this. It always becomes a journal club. So because what it's does rare. this one gene do? So th this one gene is coding this one code on CAG, um, uh, cytosine, uh, adenosine, and gu uh, gu uh, um, uh, guanine. And it repeats. So if it repeats more than, so it, it, usually it has a normal number of CAG repeats. But it, when it's abnormal, it has multiple repeats. So more than 37 or so is pathologic. And what it does is it creates this protein uh, that then creates the cascade of degeneration. It starts damaging cells. It starts killing cells. And the brain looks like it's one for, it's shrunken. Uh, by the time you see it, most of the time, because by, by like Aisha said, at the beginning they think it's psychiatric and so on and so forth. By the time it gets to the point of imaging, unless they knew it from the father's side, right, ahead of time, the, um, the brain is so shocking that you, you pull all the resonance, like, look at this. This is a 30-something-year-old with a brain that looks like Swiss cheese. And it's devastating. Um, and, and it's just that one locus. Right. Would there be... There are going to be people, though, who get Huntington's who do not have a parent that had it, right? You can still Correct. develop it. Yes. Definitely, yes. yes. Yeah. So what happens in that circumstance... What explains Huntington's if someone hasn't inherited that gene? A lot of in genetic diseases actually, not, uh, uh, what happens is spontaneous creation, uh, uh, generation of that, uh, that genetic disorder. So they become the first or case zero of their, their lineage. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what can patient, what's available to patients with Huntington's today? Not much as far as prevention, no information about that. As far as patterns are concerned, the sporadic patterns, not much. We just know that specific percentage of populations develop them. If a parent has that, your, your chances go significantly higher. As a matter of fact, um, it's so mathematical that if a, if a patient gets Huntington's disease at a specific age, they can actually tell at what age the child will get it, and that's it. Most of the treatment is focused on symptom management, so psychiatric medication, treating their anxiety, giving them physical and occupational therapy to pre uh, prevent falls and things of that nature. It's pretty uh, dismal. The psychiatric right now. component is the main thing. Yeah. And then the family. The family has to be involved at every phase of that. Yes, there's yeah. a lot of support groups and psychologists involved to help the family and their supporters. Fortunately, it's a lot rarer than Alzheimer's or Correct. Parkinson's. I mean, it's still there is an individual there, so I don't want to minimize that. It's very sad. But um, like Parkinson's, for example, like one in five hundred. No, no, it's 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 less than that, but still, it's quite quite prevalent. And um, um, and it's it's a little more on the men's side in Parkinson's. And Parkinson's is much more quiet. I did two years of fellowship in, in Parkinson's. It, it's a much longer lifespan, right? In Alzheimer's, it's usually about uh, you know ten to fifteen years. Parkinson's, you see people in their you know thirty years or forty years. Where uh, Michael J. Fox, who had it in his twenties at age twenty nine, I think, and now he still has it. So you, it, it's a longer, more chronic disease. And what my understanding is, dopamine's kind of central to that yeah so the by the time you see the first signs and one of the first signs is what they, we call pill rolling tremor which is not everybody has but a great number of them have it this pill rolling tremor and then they have the bigger tremor usually one side is worse than the other and then they get these little steps what we call march petite pas which is small little steps 
and freezing and all of these things. It's almost as if somebody just turned down the dial, you know, in their body. Everything gets slower. Their movement yes. gets slower. Their facial expression becomes more numb. What we think, what we call mask faces. Basically, there's lack of expression on their on their face. Their voice goes down. Uh, so everything just kind of their writing becomes down. smaller. Yeah. And that's all because of lack of dopamine. And, and by the time the first signs are detected, 80% of dopamine in substantia nigra, which is the main area where dopamine is created, 80% of those cells are dead. So it, the, the, there again, the key is to find out early enough so you can do something about it. So most of the drugs are, are targeting dopamine production synthesis? Correct. Correct. Uh, or blocking its breakdown. So uh, one of two, two ways. You either in create dopamine, you give dopamine, but not specifically dopamine. You give cinnamon, which is a combination that crosses the blood-brain barrier. So that if you give dopamine, peripherally, it creates all kinds of havoc. So they created this thing where it crosses the blood-brain barrier, then dopamine is presented, and that's, that's one way. The other way is you reduce the breakdown of dopamine, which is the Compton inhibitors and others, which that maintains enough dopamine in the system um, that, that it already has. So why is it, I mean, to my understanding, it's not possible to cure Parkinson's, but if it was simply just a, a sort of lack of dopamine or deficiency of dopamine um, at a high level on face value, I would have thought, well, replace the dopamine and everything symptoms go away a little bit like insulin for someone with type 2 diabetes and you know their beta cells are no longer producing this hormone so we'll exogenously replace it and they can um, metabolize carbohydrates get glucose where it needs to go etc uh, what's different about um, so uh, I'll give you another fact about this that uh, dopamine as much as we talk about it, it's a very small proportion of the neurotransmitters in the brain and uh, but the reality is it's an incredibly powerful neurotransmitter it has to do with movement and it has to do with motivation and and so there's a lot of systems involved in dopamine and once it starts dying it involves it just start, starts dying out backwards and kills a lot of uh, dopamine produce, producing cells with it so you can you can definitely give it exogenously but it's not just about giving dopamine it's is the tonic tonic release of dopamine and how much you give dopamine if you give too much dopamine which actually all parkinson's patients face this we can't we can't give dopamine in the right amounts because we, we either give too much where they develop these dyskinesias abnormal movements uh, or we give too little when they're freezing and so what we do is now pumps the newest thing is creating a pump to do it and so we're experimenting with pumps the other thing that was being done is Okay, so what does dopamine do? It goes to the basal ganglia and releases, and it's, it's incredible circuitry. It's literally circuitry. This comes on, this goes off, and as a result of on, off, on, off, you have movement. But then this other indirect system has to be turned off so that there's not excessive movement. It's electronics. So now they have these deep brain stimulators, these wires that go into the basal ganglia, and different parts can be turned on. And you have to see these videos, maybe you can share this, where the person is having so much movement and they can't control themselves or they're completely frozen and the person dial, turns the dial and all of a sudden the person is normal. It's, Come, it's one of the most fascinating things you've ever seen. Then you realize that we are mechanistic. It's remarkable. And because these wires go through areas that involve emotion, you can actually dial different parts of their emotions. So people that get too much dopamine, because you give them exogenously, they become more 
they have a greater tendency to become addicted to gambling, to, to those kind of behaviors. As so, a matter of fact, that's a question. When a Parkinson's disease patient comes to the clinic, we ask them, like, have you had any tendency to gamble? Have you been to any casinos? Do you watch, what's it called, the card games on, on poker? It's that prevalent. Yeah, so, so, so you can see that even human behavior is dialable. This is controversial. We're not going to go there, but but I'm, I I can go there. But so so what, is, what are you suggesting, yes. Jane? Uh, we can we can we, you can turn dials on people, but nonetheless, first we have to hook them up to something. That's right. That's right. But that's it's incredibly part. interesting, though, that even human behaviors could be dialed. But in Parkinson's, in a way, you're right. If we get the dosage right, if we get it right in a way where it's released in the right places, right amount, which we haven't been able to, then we'll be able to maintain them longer, right? And we can replace the dopamine-producing cells by us creating the dopamine in the right ways. We might get there at some point. But the main thing is, how about finding out why these cells are dying? There's some relationship with toxins. There's some relationship with pesticides. There's some relationship with insulin resistance. All of these we're finding out. When you, what is what is the root cause of the cells that What's produce the dopamine? Correct. Why are they dying? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. There are, there are a lot of theories, and um, all of them need further research. Like for example, there there's um, there's enough data to show that people who are exposed to pesticides, not those who consume pesticides, because that's a whole another area. Yeah, I know that. Um, Don't open up that bag of water. I'm not going to. Someone who's spraying directly contact. Exactly. They may be at a higher risk of having Parkinsonian features. Um, as far as dietary uh, elements are concerned, there is a compound called Harmane. That was one of my research studies in Columbia University with doctor with a doctor who's um, a specialist. Harmane is actually produced when people barbecue meat. And it's a compound that is very closely related to advanced glycation end products. And harmane has been directly associated with essential tremble and Parkinsonian is features. Is it in the meat or it's, it's in the air and you're inhaling no, it's in the it meat. while you're cooking? In the meat. No, no, no. We consume it in the barbecue. Barbecued meat. More in red meat, less in chicken, less in fish, less in vegetables. Mm. So, so that's a yeah. hypothesis. It's a hypothesis. But, 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 but it's a hypothesis in, in driven that. by some data. Right. So yeah. there's like multiple different studies that actually show that exposure to certain toxins and exposure to some nutritional uh, factors can definitely result into that as well. So again, just like Alzheimer's disease is multifactorial, we don't have a definitive answer to that, but I think we will. At, at some point we will with yes. big data analysis. What do you think that the... I guess the the future looks like for someone with Parkinson's in in 10 20 years will there be a lot more therapeutics that are available and to someone with Parkinson's do they typically live a, a sort of normal standard life yeah, expectancy correct they live much longer than people with Alzheimer's I mean with their disease let's just put it that way their disease also starts earlier but they live longer with their disease. And, and a lot of the mortality depends on things like falls and, and infections and things of that nature. So yes, I think that in the next 10 years, there's great hope for both treatment, early diagnosis, uh, early intervention, and finding causality. I mean, I think much of the problem with causality finding is being able to study the large data that we have already and finding the correlations of things that, that had high signal, right? And why can't we do that? Because we need that kind of large model analysis that looks at all the variables and then says, oh, wait a second, this signal is sticking out. Let's go investigate it further. And, and with, with our new tools, I think we can do that.
We definitely have some data that shows that you can slow down the progression of Parkinson's yes. disease by managing some risk factors very well. One of the things that we've been studying is insulin resistance and glucose metabolism management. That actually, if you if, if diabetes or pre-diabetes is managed better, the progression of Parkinson's disease is slowed down. Another one that is quite significant is exercise. As a matter of fact, there's a particular type of therapy for Parkinsonian patients called the big therapy, which basically they exaggerate their movements and they build muscle and they tend to do very well as far as the progression of the disease is concerned. Even in drugs like GLP-1 agonists, for diabetes, they, there was incredibly positive data and co- positive relationship with delaying of Parkinsonian, and that needs to be further further studied. Mm-hmm. Yes, fascinating. You mentioned before depression could affect cognition, and when I was doing a little bit of reading for this episode, I was interested. I came across a study. I think University of California is running on patients with Parkinson's who have depression. And they're looking at, I forget, I think it's psilocybin. It's, it's a psychedelic yeah, compound. Yeah. Um, this is a twofold question. One is, is depression really common among people with neurodegenerative diseases? And is that um, likely a contributing factor cause of or is it more of a downstream effect of having a neurodegenerative condition than they develop depression? Mm. Yes. Yes for both. <laughs> yes for both. The answer yeah. is E. But, but for Parkinson's, it seems to be part of the mechanism as well. Meaning that we know that even before Parkinson's starts, a couple of things happen very commonly beforehand, as much as 10 to 15 to 20 years earlier. One is a much higher, now I don't want, I want to make sure people who have restless legs syndrome, which is much higher, very high in the population, don't, don't take this that, oh, I have that disease or I will have Parkinson's. But people who have restless leg syndrome have a much, much higher risk of developing uh, Parkinson's. Parkinsonian patients have GI disorders, you know, uh, um, much more uh, so years earlier before the first symptoms of Parkinson's. And depression seems to be much more prevalent in Parkinson's, but almost uh, not a mechanistically related to the disease, not as a, you know, depression caused this or something, mechanistically related to the disease. So especially for Parkinson's, depression seems to be a very direct mechanistic um, uh, contributor. For, for Alzheimer's and other diseases, it appears to be more as a consequence of, as a consequence. With Alzheimer's, anxiety is a major component. Anxiety, I think, is a ubiquitous component. Um, and I, I treat anxiety and fear more than I treat the memory issues. Memory issues, well, we can't, we, we do a certain amount, but anxiety is a quality of life thing. And that seems to be ubiquitous. That list of 10 things or so before that you mentioned. Yes. We could probably add mood to that some sort of check-in yes. as to where your mood's at. Yeah, that's Absolutely. Uh, can you affect your mood? In a way, you could. I mean, so the things I said were things that you could do something about. Uh, I mean, or they themselves are the things that you do to bring about effect downstream. Can you affect your mood? In a way, you can. I really am a big believer, um, not universally, but for the language that occupies your mind, if you ha- make it a habit... Not, not so much in a Pollyannish way, but in a very systematic, functional way. Find the positive language in your head. Find the positive reason for something. Find um, 
that is a big, big factor as far as um, stress management. We, we talk about this. There are two, three ways to manage stress. Increase, uh, sorry, reduce, eliminate, and, and delegate the negative stressors. Increase, empower, and tool the positive stressors, which are the learning musical instrument, learning a language, all of this stuff. And the things you have no control over, find the positive language around that. Because if you don't, that becomes overwhelming. Then forget about changing your diet. You're not going to. Forget about exercise. It's tough. If you don't have the motivation and you have negative language in your head, why would you go run or walk for an hour? So that language really matters. I also want to say that there are a lot of cases of depression and anxiety and psychological and psychiatric problems that may not be influenced by any of this. So, you know, for anyone listening to it, they should be aware that depression is a very complex disease. It's not something that's going to get fixed by just taking a walk outside or changing your language. Sometimes you can't change Correct. that language because you were born with it or there were circumstances that that just calcified and that becomes your identity. And so addressing mood disorders and psychological problems is a very important thing and it needs to be done in the right way. And that may require a therapist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, conversations and being very open to nuance. Mm. That's really helpful advice for when you're having a conversation with a friend as well. And, um, you know, I, I think about I was listening to a, a, another friend of mine's podcast and he was talking about how you can support people around you with their mental health and he kind of came up with this i thought was really neat it was you know it can be uncomfortable to particularly men to men to ask someone how they're doing yes and amongst his group he's a surfer and there's a word stoke is like a, a word that surfers use and they came up with this thing stoke factor and they would kind of just message each other and check in just you know what's where's your stoke factor at oh um, wow nice. kind of kind of thing yeah. but um, to your point, and this was something he was reiterating, is that often it can be better just to listen instead of trying to tell someone <clears throat> what they need to do because this is so complicated. Really is. And you might think that your friend who's struggling, well, they should just go for a run or, or whatever, but it, it, could be, it could run much deeper than that. And often just listening and then helping point them in the right direction to get professional support would be a sort of better avenue to follow. Absolutely. 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 Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think that's crucial for people to know. I want to finish here with a slightly different condition um, to, to anything that we've been discussing so far. I, think, I believe it's autoimmune in, in nature. Chronic inflammatory demyelinating oli-neuropathy. That's a, a polyneuropathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, CI polyneuropathy. Sorry, CIDP. This was another condition that received and has been receiving quite a bit of attention in the Australian media. There's a very well-known swimmer, Michael Klim, who I'm going to say he's probably in his early 40s. He's not old. Um, incredible swimmer. Like when I was growing up and we were watching the Olympics. He was part of the era with Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett in, in Australia. They were winning golds all the time. I believe Butterfly was his like main stroke. He's sadly been diagnosed with CIDP. And I believe in doing a little bit of reading, like the prognosis is not amazing. It's, it can be a pretty sort of rapid development, um, loss of function. What is um, this condition? And 
is it similar or related at all to multiple sclerosis, which more people may have heard of? Mm. Not so much to multiple sclerosis, more like to Guillain-Barre. I don't know if people know about Guillain-Barre. So Guillain-Barre is um, uh, acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuroradiculopathy. This is chronic inflammatory demyelinating. So, and the, uh, whereas in MS, the demyelination, which is this fatty sheet around uh, axons in the brain, is central nervous system. In MS, it's the central nervous system that's being attacked. In these two diseases, the peripheral nervous system that's being attacked, autoimmune attack. Um, your body is creating antibodies against these the the, the myelin and the periphery. The different and and and. In AIDP or Guillain-Barre, it's more rapid. Within weeks, within a few weeks, it, 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 it starts with tingling in the fingers and then the toes. I mean, toes and fingers, mostly in the toes, and then it rises. You lose your reflexes. You start having difficulty walking. You lose some sensation, and all of a sudden, it come, goes up all the way to the, to the head. And before we had these tools like respirators and things of that nature, people died. Um, and CIDP is more chronic. If it's longer than two months, it's CIDP. So, and the Guillain-Barre, that can be transient and it they can, can recover or it can, can it's, turn It's usually transient. Okay. You treat it and, and people do well. You, what you do is if it's rapid, if you catch it early enough, you bring them into the hospital, you give them IVIG, which is this, this antibodies that fools your own nervous system, your own immune system. So the immune system attacks those antibodies and not yourself. So they, they give enough time for the body to recover. And then usually people do better. Or what they do is plasmapheresis, where they draw your blood and clean it from these antibodies. And then they put it back. And I mean, it's a machine, it's continuous. And they do it five days in a row or so. And person does really well. Most majority of people recover from Guillain-Barre. Um, and with CIDP, it's a little more difficult. And with CIDP, it's more chronic. It doesn't, it's not as responsive to treatment. And, and they have the same symptomology, loss of um, sensation, um, um, loss of reflexes, the, this gait ataxia where the feet don't know where they're going, um, and weakness, and the weakness rises. Um, sometimes it stops. Sometimes actually slows down. Sometimes it regresses, but it, but a proportion actually goes on and becomes worse. It, it doesn't respond in the same way that you use the drugs for Guillain-Barre. It responds more to steroids and some other things that we use more powerful drugs like methotrexate and steroids, and, and there are experimental uh, drugs going on. But it's it has to do with an autoimmune disease against peripheral uh, nerves. Do um, we know what might trigger that? That we do. For example, for Guillain-Barre, it's uh, so what it is is mimicry. So what the body fools an external thing for itself. The the antigens are the, on them are similar. So usually it's and and Guillain-Barre, it's a common one is um, um, micro, um, uh, Campylobacter jejuni, which is a bacteria in the stomach. So the body full gets fixes on that, creates antibodies against that, which actually becomes it's the same antibodies against the myelin cells or other bacterial and viruses like uh, Epstein-Barr virus or other bacteria. So these are things that people come in contact with in, in the environment, Correct. which then sets off this, uh, this sort of attack against that, but at the same time, it's attacking your own 
body. Exactly. There's usually a history of having some sort of a GI infection or a flu-like symptoms about two weeks before the onset of this reaction to the body in the acute inflammatory demyelinating form. And the chronic one, it's different. It is. They, there's not necessarily any external agent that induced it. Not that we know of yet. So far. So far, yeah. yeah. So that's why it's called chronic because it's very slow and it's very, very progressive and it doesn't really turn around the way acute form does. Interesting. So listeners may be more familiar with type 1 diabetes, for example, yes. another autoimmune condition. In that case, the body is attacking its own beta cells in yes. the pancreas and then eventually that person can't produce insulin. Um where does multiple sclerosis sort of come into this? Is that another autoimmune yes, condition? Yes, yes. It's Definitely. a very interesting yeah. one. It, it's some, it has some really unique features. So MS is a disorder that affects women more. It, it ha affects certain populations. If you have traveled uh, past a certain latitude before the age of 15, yeah, age 15, uh, your risk becomes much less. If you've traveled after that, your risk is higher. People from the Nordic areas are much higher risk, but if they come to the United States, let's say before the age of 15, the risk is lower. So it, there seems to be a temporal, geographic, infectious, autoimmune. Do you see the multiple The changing things? of the environment. It's not the getting on the plane. No, 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 no. Might, I don't know. At the beginning of that, I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but to be honest, we don't. But, but it's most likely the fact that that uh, you have certain genetic proclivities because you're from certain areas of the world. And you remember that. And when you travel from one place to another place before a certain age, because the myelin is developing in that before that age, uh, uh, pro probably rapidly, certain infections that are in the new area are making you more susceptible. Now, I'm, this is way extrapolation. So I want the audience to know I'm, I'm, I'm playing around now with theories. We don't know clearly, but we know these relationships, again, large data analysis will give us much better picture but we know these relationships it has to do potentially it has to do with exposure to epstein-barr virus yes. uh, uh, during childhood it has to do probably with yes sun exposure and vitamin d production in the body and the theory is that people who are living in the northern hemisphere are not exposed to vitamin D or sunlight and that's why they have increased risk and if they travel from a northern area to say for example a tropical area before the age of 15 their risks fall significantly vice versa if somebody lives in the tropical sunny area if they travel to a northern area they've done some migration studies they've looked at immigrants who are from a tropical area and they started living in northern areas the parents were fine but then their children had a higher risk of developing multiple sclerosis and add on top of that there's a genetic component as well. So the genetic is not absolute in this case. There seems to be a, a genetic recovery, infection, vitamin D environment. So you can see that it's still multidimensional, but it's kind of very interesting. Super for, interesting. For a while, they thought that it was related to the, the what, what do they call it, dog despair, this, uh, to a virus from a dog, because right, right. when they looked at this population in an island off of England, uh, this population had a much higher risk of developing uh, MS. And the only difference was in this population, there were certain dogs. So they thought that was related to this virus, but it wasn't. It was just the 
the population's risk factors. But at, at its core, it's an autoimmune condition where there are specific um, antigens um, that, you know, the, the antibodies actually start damaging the myelin or the fatty layer that uh, is a supporting structure that's an insulation that helps the messaging system. So a nerve communicates with another nerve through these axons and these myelins essentially make that communication go faster and when the myelin is damaged it doesn't go faster it slows down and so it actually causes trouble with movement with sensation with coordination with vision and it happens in younger individuals and it's very interesting because sometimes these symptoms of say for example oh I have numbness in one hand or my foot I have a foot drop I have a friend who has MS and the first signs of her symptoms was she couldn't when she was walking in the hallway in the hospital with us she would drag her foot and we would all laugh like what are you doing so it could just be a foot drop and these things actually get ignored because they get better over time there's almost like a remission where they get better over time and people tend to ignore them but now we know that with imaging and with biomarkers from the cerebrospinal fluid one can actually very sensitively detect multiple sclerosis the most common sign first sign and symptom is uh, optic uh, well the, the first comment is optic neuritis where they have difficulty with vision and when you look at the uh, uh, the eye there is macular um, uh, swelling and there is inflammation, and, and, and it's related to this um, uh, autoimmune process that starts in the optic nerve. Mm. I read an interesting review on MS and nutrition, and it, it seems a lot of it's very preliminary. Um, and, but they, they, there were some interesting findings there suggesting that polyunsaturated fats and fiber may be helpful in managing symptoms. And they may, they emphasize that certainly not enough data to suggest that they could replace medications, at least in most scenarios, but enough there to hopefully inspire some future um, nutrition intervention trials. Right, yeah. Overall, I think uh, the data shows that- Did you see how we looked at each other there? <laughs> we so I'll tell you this is we just our 19th anniversary was 29th of April so we've 19 years actually tw a year before that we were congratulations this is conversations we've had for 20 years <laughs> there are areas that it makes us a little uncomfortable and this is one of them I and mean, I hope we were wrong I love it when we're wrong about this but but I think when it comes to MS the nutrition world is like jumping way too far right uh, yes there is that the mechanism is not conducive for that kind of yeah inflammation but 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 the data is not that strong so we just did another podcast we looked at the data pretty closely there isn't good data there isn't really good data yeah, we hope we're wrong i but. think i think I, we made a reel on our on our instagram and we got so many questions and a lot of people were very upset too because there have been groups and movements in the nutrition world namely roy swank you know that was a, a doctor who basically created a dietary pattern for ms patients and then we have the Walls Protocol. Terry Walls is a, is a, an internal medicine specialist somewhere in uh, I think Iowa, and she had the Walls Protocol. She has MS, and you know it was basically a paleo kind of a diet. And then exactly, and then Dr. McDougall did another trial to look at low-fat uh, whole food plant-based diet and its effect on MS. And in all of these dietary patterns, you tend to see that people 
quote unquote feel better, which means that they are able to do their activities better, but it does not, it never modified the disease process. There was, there's no objective evidence of these kind of dietary patterns, getting rid of these white matter lesions that we see in multiple sclerosis. There's no impact on the rate of remission of the disease. They just felt better. And then there were some studies that looked at Mediterranean diet and multiple sclerosis. So generally speaking, the theme is if you eat a diet that consists of fiber, polyunsaturated fats instead of saturated fats, uh, complex carbohydrates instead of refined carbohydrates, and more uh, focus on an anti-inflammatory component of the diet, people actually tend to do better. But we can't say that it reverses the disease or modifies the disease in any way. Right. That's the important nuance and context, the reason that you're sitting here to add that. <laughs> and the reason we're, so the question is, so why are you saying this? I mean, uh, plants are good, so, or eating healthy is good, it's going to help, yes. But extrapolating um, uh, outcome statements are consequential, because then if we make statements that are n not really driven by strong data, we weaken our conversations, we weaken our science, we weaken our... Uh, whatever else we say, not we, all of us. So that's why it's important. And we, we stop potentially exploring as deeply and potentially if someone sort of overestimates how impactful nutrition is, say for example yes. in this, they could be inclined to turn something else down. Agreed. And the, sorry. sorry to cut you off, but no, no. in MS, we actually do have disease-modifying medication. We actually have good medications that can lower the rate of, uh, you know, the or, or increase remission or actually reduce the impact of multiple sclerosis on outcome, right? And so a lot of people, if we put too much in, uh, emphasis on diet, they might actually turn down some medications that could potentially help them. Yeah. And you know how it is, like with this whole notion of drugs being bad and mm -hmm. lifestyle being good. I think it's it's finding a balance between the two. And and we'd never say that eating healthy is not going to help everything. But for example, in the realm of nutritional psychiatry, Oh goodness, there's so much. That's another two hours. Seems so like many the, wrong the, things going the on cart there. is a long way ahead of the horse. Oh, way oh, ahead. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and the danger there is people hear this and they say, oh, I'm not going to take my antipsychotic medication. I'm going to just eat more no. broccoli, mm. which we love broccoli, mm. but it's not going to stop your psychosis. Yeah, we could dedicate another episode to that. I haven't told you I'm, actually, I'm involved in a prospective cohort study. Um, this is work done by Megan Lee at Bond University in Australia. Um, and we're trying to get a better feel for dietary patterns and depression because this is a, another one where there's been a lot of a lot of headlines and a lot of talk on social media, but the data is mostly cross-sectional. There's no temporal element. It's it's not robust data at all. So we're kind of we're looking to go into um, initially with a, a data set that is going to allow us to look at the temporal nature. And then um, Megan's hope is to set up a prospective cohort study. Oh, that would be that. amazing yeah. because if you have large, so in everything it's your, your measurement tool, large of your, uh, the, the, the sample size and your methodology. If you can control those three things, at the minimum, you're gonna get better data. You're gonna get more delineable. I mean, that's, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited that's happening. Good. <clears throat> I think maybe we should land the plane. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And, uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure having you both back on. And as I said at the start, just happy to be back in your presence. Looking forward to dinner uh, in a few nights' time. Yes. Um, yes. And, 
maybe going for a bike ride as well. We're we looking forward that. to that. Absolutely. We appreciate you. Um, you know, the, the podcast, the proof. I mean, I, um, it's okay if I speak for both of us. Of right? course. I mean, we're just such big fans of, of the fan, of the podcast, especially because, um, because you bring nuance, you bring different kind of conversations. And I think one of the most important things we can do and we should be doing is stay away from absolutes and bring more nuance and complexity to our conversation. So we thank you for bringing that into the Proof Podcast. Thank you. And if, she if said. folks, I know you've been on this show like a bazillion times, so everyone's familiar with you, but should they not be, uh, firstly, go back and listen to all those episodes. I think Omega-3s came up in this episode. We did a two-hour conversation yeah. yes, just on that, and there's probably another five more um, stemming back to the original ones we did at your place. So if someone is, is wanting to connect with you, though, where can we send them? Sure. Uh, we are The Brain Docs on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, now TikTok. Um, and uh, <laughs> our website is thebraindocs.com. Um, we actually have a really good newsletter where we collect the latest information, evidence-based information on brain health and send it out to our um, audience. And it includes the podcast. We have a podcast too. Uh, it's called The Brain Health Revolution. Um, and so, yeah, there's multiple ways that people can stay in touch with us and we love communicating with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed your deep dive into the the amyloid controversy on the podcast. So people can go and listen to that for a bit more information. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.